Hey, everybody. This is Rob. I just wanted to pass along a, a thank you note from Papa Nurgle. He said to thank you all for your patience while he basically played roughshod with my lungs and sinuses over the last few days and kept me from editing. So without further ado, here's episode 189 of Preferred Enemies. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the podcast that built this city on rock and war roll. I'm Rob. I'm Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And today, this is episode 189. 200 is quickly approaching, well, in 20 weeks, but <laughs> or somewhere. <laughs> but uh, episode 189, and this episode, we are going to be talking about City Fight and Urban Conquest, the new campaign box that Games Workshop put out. Uh, we've got the giant plastic folder spread out here. We're going to kind of dig into what all these little city tiles and, and cards and stickers mean and how this is going to work with campaign play and, you know, what, el- what else, you know, enta- is brought in with City Fight. Uh, but first, as always, we're going to do uh, news and new releases and your listener mail. And it's actually been a... Uh, at first, I thought, you know, this has actually not been that busy a week, but we had a late late edition there that suddenly yeah. really pumped it up. Uh, but uh, first off, let's see. Um, well, we've got a new beta rule, the bolter drill rule. Yes. Uh, yes. So Games Workshop decided that uh, after collecting feedback that Space Marine bolters were just not cutting it. So uh, there was, and it was actually somebody got a hold of the February White Dwarf a little early and posted a like a grainy photo from it because every spoiler has to come in potato format, <laughs> right. camera, right? Uh, but no, they've added a uh, a new rule. It, it's a beta rule, and this was actually posted on the twenty first, uh, so about a week ago. Uh, introducing better beta bolters. So the new rule is bolter discipline. All Adeptus Astartes and Heretic Astartes models gain this ability instead of the normal rules for rapid-fire weapons, rapid-fire bolt weapons, and they have a whole list of what what is included with that. Uh, used by models with this ability, make double the number of attacks if any of the following apply. The firing model's target is within half the weapon's maximum range, which is normal rapid-fire. The firing model remains stationary during the previous movement phase, or the firing model is a Terminator, Biker, Centurion, or Vehicle. And then again, they spell out everything that's involved. That also includes the uh, Gauntlets of Ultimar, or Ultramar, the Talon of Horus, their rapid-fire bolt weapons, and the Guardian Spear used by Death Watch Watchmaster also qualifies as a rapid-fire bolt weapon. So, in effect, you know, I think when people first saw that, like, oh my god, like four shots per Marine. No, 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 no. It's it's no, it's it's just. <laughs> Better rapid fire. It's better rapid fire. Yes. It's basically did you did you move and they're within half range? Rapid fire. Did you stand still and they're at any range that's within your maximum range? Rapid fire. Are you a stable platform? Rapid fire. Yeah. Relentless is back, baby. Yep. <laughs> yep. Which yeah. I, I like. You might actually see Terminators now. Right. I, I maybe. I was also <laughs> thinking about like the Grey Knight list that I was kicking around yep. that was as many strike dudes as I could 
like fit into the list. And they're all armed with storm bolters. Yep, they yep. are. Yeah. So suddenly, or yeah, and somebody who's rocking uh, terminators instead of strike squad. Yeah, everything's doubled. Uh, you know, every, you know everything. It's you know it's four shots all day, every day. Yep. It also carries over to things like Thousand Sun Inferno bolts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact I'm l- glad that they carried it over to Heretic Astartes. I think that's yeah. that's a welcome addition that helps bring them up a bit too. Is it going to be enough to necessarily? I, it, it does this make those armies suddenly competitive? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. It's a relatively small change, but it does give them more effective firepower. Yeah, and I and I think that's the important part. Well, I think you're going to see certain units get used a little bit more. Like I kind of jokingly said, I think Terminators and bikes will get used a little bit more because you can move and shoot now at at full effectiveness. And I think you're probably going to see uh, intercessors a little bit more if you're going to and have them be played more as a static gun line because what 30, 30 inch range, 30 inch vultures? range. Yep. Like that's really good. Two shots at 30 inch range. You know, that's you're practically Tau at that point. Yeah. 30. Well, you're better than Tau at that point. Yeah. 30, 30 yeah. inch range. I mean, strength, strength for what AP minus one on a bolt mm-hmm. rifle. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's really solid. And yeah, and then having vehicles just, you know, mm-hmm. having, so somebody brought up the fact that like Storm Ravens and Land Raider Crusaders with their dual hurricane bolters getting the maximum number of shots because they're vehicles. So, mm-hmm. yep. I mean, they're going to put out a ton of firepower. Now, again, this is only rapid fire, so it doesn't carry over to heavy bolters. It doesn't carry over to assault bolters. So like, uh, inceptors with the assault, like the dual assault bolters are not affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it does also include any combi, the bolter par- portions of combi weapons. It includes any relics that replace bolt weapons that are rapid fire. So, I mean, they, they've tried to word this as inclusively as possible, but well, not. And I also yeah. like that they, that they've specified that it only is for space Marines too. you know, Adeptus Astartes, Heretic Astartes. So your custodes jet bikes aren't getting, <laughs> a boatload of shots all the time. You know, you're, you're not necessarily happy. It actually kind of helps to differentiate space Marines a little bit from sisters or custodes and some of these other ones or guard that take bolters, which is just, I, I think it's good. I think, it, I think it should be a uh, space Marine get this benefit. And nobody else does. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I like that. This is a rule that they're, they're working with. I'm definitely going to, play around with it. I am sad that my sisters won't get it, but the Blood Angels army that I'm working on will, so uh, I'm happy that I'm happy with that. Let's see what else. Uh we know uh last episode we talked about how the uh, the gunslinger uh gene stealer cultist and the new tech priest were going to be included in kill team. Yes. Uh we've got rules downloads for them now. Uh and so far it looks like they are only going to be available in those particular kill teams. And I also do like that the kill teams now include commanders and they still include terrain with them. So like the packaging is just more stuff for, I think it's still about the same price, about 60 bucks a kill team. So that continues to be a good thing. Uh, we've got arena coming. Uh, that all went up for pre-order this week, which apparently, uh, the guys at Nova open worked very, were like some of the play testers for the kill team arena and kind of worked in the stuff that they developed for the Nova open kill team tournament, which was one of the first nice. kill team tournaments kind of worked it into the mission design for arena. So kind of curious to see what comes out of that and see if that does make it 
more of a matched play compatible event. Although I, you know, I was still kind of like Kill Team always strike struck me as something that'd be pretty easy to do matched play with because the book supported it right out of the box. But mm-hmm. but you know, new formats for playing are always welcome. New ways to play are always good. Let's see what else. Oh yeah, uh, Funko Pop. Funko Pops. <laughs> Funko Pops. Yeah. So. Uh, Games Workshop officially has jumped onto the pulp, co- the pop culture kitsch train with, uh, four new Funko Pops that are coming of four loyalist founding chapters, Ultramarine, Space Wolves, Dark Angels, and Blood Angels, or as you guys phrased it, two Chaos Marines and two regular Marines. <laughs> hey, I-, I said one was Xeno because Space Wolves are kind of different. <laughs> yeah, I'd, l- I'd lump them under Chaos. Yeah, mutants. But yeah, mutants. <laughs> big hairy mutants. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so you can officially get your, your 40k fix in short, kitschy plastic now. I'm actually probably going to pick up the Blood Angels one. Maybe. I mean, as somebody who has a bunch of short, kitschy plastic things on my desk at work, I'm probably going to pick up one or two of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll probably have, like, yeah, mine will probably show up on my desk at work as well. Yeah, I mean, I have some Ultramarines, but not... <laughs> Spray paint it silver. It's now a gray night. Ta-da! <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> but I imagine at some point they'll probably add in other things as well, too. Yeah. If like this goes an well, Eldar they'll, they'll Necron. Like, yeah, one of mm-hmm. Xenos people. Like, Orc, Eldar, An Necron. Orc would be perfect for a Funko yeah. Pop. Yeah, if they did an Orc, I'd, I'd have to get that one. Yeah, I imagine, I imagine we'll see if these sell well. They'll do I – mean, well, hell, they do Funko Pops of everything these days, of yeah, like right. all sorts of characters. So and I wouldn't – And real-life people. And real-life people, yeah. So I would not be surprised if we see a second set of these. So, so we could have Orc, Eldar, Necron, and a hidden fourth one that nobody knows. Uh, no, nah, we should be a cha- – well, you need to have a Chaos Marine. Okay. We, I, I was trying to do a Xeno so – here's your loyalty, then do a Xeno one, then do a Chaos one. Oh, Chaos has to wait last. I see how it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how it. That's how it always works. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Let's see. And then on the the Black Library celebration is coming up February twenty third and twenty fourth, and they've announced a new commissar model for that Severina Rain, who's based off of a new book series from Black Library, and that model has already been building up some uh, controversy because apparently some people find it's not female enough. Or and it's usually guys arguing about this. Strangely enough, I'm just going to point that out. Okay. Listeners cannot see this, but I have a sweat drop. Actually, it's not even a real sweat drop, but the like anime style st- sweat drop, like going what? <laughs> yeah. Um, most of the arguments come down to the fact that she that the mo- at the model scale they can't tell she's female because she doesn't have long hair or boob plate. Not all females are like that. Not all armor is like that. No. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Honestly, I think the model looks fine, and it's cool. Yeah, to have it's, a good model. it's cool to have a new commissar model. Uh, she comes in box with the 40k rules for her, and apparently, the new white dwarf coming in February will have rules for her and kill team as well. So, she will be a not quite stock standard uh, commissar for uh, to use as kill team commander. Nice. And then the big news that hit us shortly before recording time is we officially have a pre-release or a pre-order date for Gene Steeler Colts, and that is next Saturday. So probably by the time you hear this, they'll be up for pre-order. So we're getting. Uh, they also oh they did release announce a new vehicle for Gene Steeler Colts, which is yeah. not on the pre-order list yet. Right. What was it? The Achilles Ridge Runner or something like the, that? Yeah, something like that. 
uh, which is basically looks like a, a, like kind of like the rock grinder, but just little. Yeah, kind of stripped down <laughs> a little bit. It's got a mining laser mounted to the top or a mortar in the back. They, yeah. yeah, they talked about it. You know, it's got a couple of weapon options. But we're getting, let's see, the Adelin Jackals, which is looks like it's going to be a box of four bikes and a quad runner, which is cool. The Jackal Alphas, which is the bike sniper that they showed off uh, a while back. Um, there's the then we've got names for all the characters that they've announced so far. So like the guy with the beer, the weird icon and the not so purity seals that we mentioned last episode is the Locus. Uh, the new Magus is just a Magus. She's a now st- a standalone Magus model. The guy with the Voxcaster has probably the worst name, and he is the Clam of Us. <laughs> yes, you heard Richard. Just ch- sensible chuckle. <laughs> this is what drop number two yeah, of the episode. The Clam of Us. <laughs> uh, the san- there's the Sanctus, who is the uh, assassin with the night night vision goggles, and his familiar with the night vision goggles. The Nexos, who is the Gene Stealer planning the attack on Warhammer World, because he's got the uh, 3D holographic display, which somebody compared to an aerial shot from Google Maps. And it's like, hey, that's Warhammer World. <laughs> uh, the Tectonic Frag Drill, which is their new piece of like Sector Mechanicus terrain that's basically a couple of tiers of that, of like archway and, and walkway, and then a giant drill. Pointed straight down, uh, re-releasing the Brood Brothers Guard slash uh, Gene Stealer Cult kit, and then finally the the uh, Codex itself. They haven't told us how Cult Ambush is going to work yet, although they said they're going to release that information in the next week. So again, by the time you hear this, we'll all know how that's supposed to work. But what's interesting to me is that the Codex itself, not the limited edition Codex, not the special edition Codex. The stock, the stock codex comes with 28 cult ambush markers and a nine inch range ruler that you will use for adjudicating the rules for cult ambush. So I'm guessing you're never going to have more than 28 um, units in your army. <laughs> well, that are ambushing at once, I would hope not. Right. Yeesh. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it's kind of something like how. The, the gene stealers are in uh, space hole. It was, it's like blips. Yeah. Oh, so it might be there. It might not be them. Yeah, that would actually right. be kind of cool. It's like you would put all these marks on the map and it's like, okay. Some are blank and some have a number that corresponds to a unit. And maybe you roll to see, or maybe it's a number, like you roll and see where they come up. Hmm. And so, yeah, maybe. so like maybe you have to put the markers on the map before, like on the board before your opponent, and then your opponent start, you have to place them like nine inches out from everybody, but as your opponent moves forward, maybe you can come up from those points? Possibly, mm, yeah. Maybe. I, I'm not sure because the Eldar Webway, if someone's within nine inches, you can't use it. Oh, that's also possible, mm. but yeah, I, we'll have to see what the rules look like. Right. So, yeah. But I, I'm... I'm curious. I'm intrigued. So, uh, and then of course, data cards and, uh, data cards, new dice, you know, pretty standard fare for a new codex release. But it looks like we're, you know, Gene Sealer cults are going to get, uh, majorly fleshed out in a week or two. So kind of, kind of excited for the, for the cult players. I'm not excited to play against it because because <laughs> a good Gene Stealer cult army in the previous edition was could be really oh, yeah. rough. Yeah. I, I still have some nightmares of getting stomped <laughs> by Gene Stealers at Renegade. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I I really want to make get like two of that Ridge Runner kit, uh-huh. and then like 
put them together as a limo. <laughs> like a stretch so, Hummer? Like a, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Well, they do need the. They need a limo at this point. Although they've kind of, they're leaning really hard into like the mining guild look of oh, Gene Steeler right. cult. So they, maybe they're the, going to be the ones that release the squats from their imprisonment underneath the ground. <laughs> now I have the sweat drop, <laughs> and possibly the throbbing vein in my forehead too, which is not good. I have high blood pressure. Stop that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that just about wraps it up for new news. Well, new- oh wait, wait, did I miss something? Yep. Um, I mean, we didn't talk about oh, this yeah. last. I, I kind of tried to avoid it. No. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. Well, okay. So what Richard, what Richard is referring to is he is holding a co- copy, and I realized on my way over here that I forgot to pack mine, and thought, oh, that would be a, would have been a good thing to talk about. So I'm glad you brought it. Uh, what I'm referring to is Wrath and Glory, uh, the 40k role playing game is now out in print form. You've, you've been able to get it through like uh, drive through RPG and places like that as a PDF for a few months now. But uh, the print version is now in in stores. We, I know you have a copy, obviously, because you're holding it. I have a copy. Kevin, you have a copy of the print version yet? Yeah, I have a copy because I was able to pick it up at Gen Con. Okay, so you've had it for a little while. Yep. Um, so this is effectively a replacement for all of the fantasy flight games 40k role playing because it does seem to support all those styles of play and then some i mean there are rules in here for playing as imperial guardsmen there if you want if you liked only war if you like death watch there's rules for playing as space marines leveled all the way up to being like death you know death watch veterans there's rules in here for playing as a rogue trader or an inquisitor or inquisitorial ac- acolytes. There's rules in here for playing as chaos cultists and rogue psychers. There's also rules in here for playing as orcs and Eldar. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the the game right out of the out of the box supports a lots of styles of play, and the rules mechanics are actually pretty simple and surprisingly focused more on the narrative than the crunch, which I I found surprising. This could have easily gone uh, the other way and been a much more finicky rule set. Uh, so, it, and it's basically, it's a D6 dice pool game where you're trying to get so many successes on your dice. Each four and five is a success. Each six counts as two successes. If you have more successes than you need, you can increase the effectiveness of what you do. Uh, that that pretty much covers the the core of the game. Combat's kind of interesting in that players always like the players always choose somebody to go first, and then you it, uh, go back and forth with your opponent or not your opponent, the GM. GM is kind <laughs> of your opponent in this case, but uh, you you alternate. Although there there's also points that you can like use to like they can use to interrupt or that you can use to get special effects. Uh, it, you know, it, there's a lot of narrative support in here. That said, there are a few issues I have with the book. Um, the layout is not the best in the world. There's sidebars that don't look like sidebars. There's uh, obvious errors in a few parts, including their character generation example. Because they have someone's like, ah, so-and-so wants to make a... Uh, an imperial fist. So it costs a hundred points to play at like they have 300 points to build with because it's a tier three game, which tiers is kind of how they determine the general power level of a campaign. So like uh, 
starting off guardsmen would be tier one, space marines are like space marine scouts are tier two, space marines are tier three, and so on. And it's like, okay, so this is going to be a tier three game, and it costs 100 points to play as a space marine, except it actually costs 50 points to play as a space marine. So there's a, there's a, a major flaw right off the bat. So the character they made in Caragen is playing 50 points down. So it just there's there's a number of things like that. The rules organization is not the best. The rules themselves seem fine, but there are things kind of scattered throughout the book. Fortunately, there is an index. There is a table of contents, so you can find these things. My biggest complaint, besides like the layout, which the layout just needs somebody to come in and kind of redo their graphic design. But my biggest complaint is there's about a half dozen decks that they sell alongside this game. So there's like a, there's like a critical wounds deck, or I think it's called the wrath. There's the wrath deck. There's a campaign deck. There's a psychic powers and talents deck. There's a perils of the warp deck. There's a combat complications deck. And I want to say there's one, I think there's an equipment deck. Some of those are not required at all. Like the talents and psychic powers, that's just to have reference cards. The uh, Perils of the Warp deck, I believe, is just for reference. Uh, the uh, equipment cards, obviously, just for reference. Combat complications are not covered in the main rules. Again, it's just it's a, that's something to add a little bit of flavor to the game. However, the campaign decks and the wrath decks, the campaign deck is not really mentioned much at all in the book. Except for the fact that it's like at the beginning of each campaign or each session, the players draw one campaign card. Now, they have never told you in the book up to this point, you might want to buy a campaign deck. So if you just bought the book, you'd have yeah. no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, I just bought the book. Yeah. So, yeah, the parts was like, yeah, you start with a campaign card. Really? And where can I find them? Yeah. <laughs> um, they have a the Wrath deck, which covers more like a critical hit effects also is used for uh, resolving what they call threatening challenges which is if you've played D D like fourth edition or so there's the idea of skill challenges where it's like this ongoing set of things going on and to solve the whole thing you'd have to do a number of skill checks as a team to get through it and this is the same kind of idea with the possibility of like complications coming up and certain tests getting harder. And it's all based off of like what kind of threatening challenge it is and, and what factions might be involved. And all of these wrath cards have icons on them of like particular factions or traits, keywords. The game is very keyword heavy. The threatening challenges section just assumes that you have a wrath deck. If you didn't buy one, you have to then flip through the book to the combat section where it has the actual critical hit table. And then on that, it'll actually say, oh, and here are the keywords for this entry for threatening challenges. So you've got to refer to the combat section if you don't buy the deck. It, it just, there are things that it's like you sh really should have said early on in the book when it says these are the things you need to play. The rule book, character sheets, dice. Also, these two card decks would be very useful. <laughs> so... Uh, this is a first edition. Um, they're kind of, you know, this is the first time Ulysses New North America has tackled 40K. Uh, the game, I'm sure, plays fine. Uh, but I do feel that if you were new to role playing, if you, if you had like, you played 40K, maybe you've played some kill team now and you're like, hey, you know, it'd be kind of fun to play one of the, do a role playing game of these kill teams. And you just saw, oh, hey, Wrath and Glory, that's a thing I can buy now and buy that off the shelf. 
and just bought that, I think you would could you could be put off by the fact that there's all this extra stuff that you really should buy at least or at least you need to buy these two decks to really get the most use out of the game and they don't mm-hmm. really make that clear up front. And I find that to be disappointing. I mean, that's even something you could just put on the back cover and s- say, hey, you'll need d- D6 dice and also look for these two decks. And those decks aren't, like, of the six decks they have for sale, none of them are, like, marked. They all look the same. Like, the packaging is all identical. So it would be very, other than the name on them. So it would be very easy for somebody to pick up the wrong one. If they went into right. a store and they're like, uh, "I just need, give, uh, I just need some of the decks for the 40k role playing game." Well, which ones do you need? Ah, crap, I don't remember. And turns out, what if you bought them and you they were out of campaign decks and you didn't know it? You know, it's that kind of that kind of thing where if you were new to role playing and didn't know what to look for, this could be really frustrating. Also, there's some weird omissions. Like this is a book that allows you to play as an Imperial Guard campaign. There's no stats for a Chimera in the book. Their stats were rhinos and Valkyries and land raiders and Goliath rock crushers and stuff like that. No, no chimeras. So I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of splat books that put certain campaign types in the focus and provide you with more rules for there or more rules for that. So I imagine we'll see an Imperial Guard book that will talk about playing an Imperial Guard campaign and provide all the extra equipment and some other like talents and and things like that there will be a space marine book that probably or maybe a death watch book that includes all the rules for like special ammunition and playing as a chaplain or in terminator armor or uh playing uh playing a dreadnought because that's a thing you could do in the final in the fantasy flight one uh they mentioned that like hey tier three or like tier four play would be perfect for playing a or maybe it was tier three, perfect for playing an Eldar aspect warrior. There are no rules for aspect warriors in this book. So obviously they have intentions to do that down the road. It's just, I was a little, it was just weird that they would mention these things and then not have them. Well, so the one thing I'll say, cause when I actually, you know, I actually got to play this at Gen Con and I, I had a good time with it. Um, but again, you know, were playing with, uh, you know, people from the company that like know the rules and like right. had all the decks and everything. Um, the one thing that I'll say is the game is you mentioned it's a replacement for the Fantasy Flight games. It is and it isn't. It's much more 40K D&D than any of the Fantasy Flight games were. And what I mean by that is when you go to play this, you're not all playing, you know, five people. OK, we're all going to be guardsmen and we're going to run a guard campaign. It's. Okay, we need somebody to be a guardsman with a sniper rifle because we need long range shooting. We need somebody to be a tech marine or a tech priest so that we can break into things. We need somebody to be a assault marine because we need somebody to do melee. The way that the game is designed and the way the the missions are, it's it's much more of like put a party together and then go do the thing rather than we're all going to be death watch marines and we're going to go kill millions of orcs on a planet like we could do in the death watch rpg for fantasy flight so it's 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 different and i think that kind of is it is part of the reason why like there isn't quite as much depth of things like they mentioned that yeah aspect warriors and this and all these things are going to come out i don't know that the intention was like okay you've got this group a rhino works we don't really need to put rules in for a chimera that is only slightly different uh, at least starting out but I, I do like the game. I think it's an interesting setup, and I, it's I do like that it is uh, 
way more narrative focused than it seems like it should be. I, I really like the, the narrative, like wrath and glory die aspects of the game. And I think it's a well-designed system. And I think once they flesh it out, put other splat books out, I think it'll be a really good game. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a problem with the mechanics. I, I will disagree with you a little bit on how they intend it to play. I mean, I'm obviously you have played it and I, and I've only read the book, but the book kind of leans heavily into the idea of tiered play. Like, Hey, this is going to be a tier one campaign. So you're all going to play. Like if you want to do a, a guardsman campaign, it's going to be a tier one. If you're going to do uh, an all Eldar campaign, probably want to play tier two or three. And they, they give examples of what different tiered campaigns would look like. Yeah. And, and like the sample of play cartoon they had was looked like it was about a tier two game because it had like a veteran guardsman with a sniper rifle and a tech priest and a commissar and a space marine scout. And those all come in at about tier two. So yeah, yeah you can totally play it that way and, and explain why those characters are working together. But it also does, you can run it either way. And fortunately with being a more narrative framework, uh, the, you know, the, the GM can kind of determine like, okay, so you're playing this kind of campaign. So this is, that also tells me roughly what I should be putting against you threat wise and what kind of stuff you're, you're dealing with. I also picked up Dark Tides, which was their like set of intro adventures. And it's five intro adventures that all kind of lead into each other and tell a story, except for the fifth one. And I don't want to spoil this at all, but the, the fifth one is specifically says, this is for an Eldar team playing through and seeing the story from a different point of view. Huh. Woohoo, Eldar. So so they are they are expect and also with like Eldar you could play an Eldar range like if you want to do a rogue trader campaign you could play outcast. an Eldar range yeah now you could do an outcast ranger but you could also do like they have rules for corsairs and warlocks as well so you could do a straight up Eldar game, an Eldar campaign. The orcs don't really play well with anybody else, unless you you could do orc mercenaries, though. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's support for this stuff in there, and there is support for kind of spreading out. But they also the reason I said it replaces the fantasy flight games games is because it does. I mean, it's not the same thing. But if you wanted to play the feel of any one of those games, the subject matter of any one of those games, sure. this supports a lot of it. And I think that was probably one of the conditions that was given to him. It's like we, we're we replacing all of these games, which were all the same system yet mutually incompatible, which was weird. <laughs> because like the rules for Space Marines in one game didn't work with the Space Marines in the other games because the power... Uh, level was kind of different like if you were playing dark heresy where you're playing inquisition a space marine shows up and they're godlike because they should be at that setting right. whereas if you were playing death watch you're all playing space marines and the rules were like they would have rules and like sections of the books like if you're wanting to play along with this game you're gonna have to change these rules here and these rules here and these because they would change how certain things worked with each iteration of the game and they weren't compatible at all. Whereas this one would let you bring in somebody and they'd even talk about like, Hey, if you want to bring in like a guardsman into like a tier three campaign alongside uh, space Marines, here's how you take a level one guardsman or a tier one guardsman and elevate them, ascend them to a tier three. So now they're a, like they're a hardened veteran space, you know, sergeant or, you know, Colonel or somebody and they, they, they've got a, a wicked scar and they've got all this extra 
extra experience to work with. And so, you know, they, they come up with ways to kind of elevate characters to, to be in different tiers. But you can also play like a level, you can play a tier one Necromunda style ganger campaign out of this too. So, I mean, I like that it supports all of that. I'm just looking for when they kind of flesh out individual aspects. And that's when you're going to really start to see like, here's the guardsman campaign book. And that's going to feel very much like only war type thing. Yep. But I do like that they support all of it. So I think that is the last of the new releases. Well, we yeah, there's actually one so. more. Oh, God. What, what Kevin? <laughs> uh, we've got beta rules for all the custodes. Oh, stuff now right. From oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Who cares about custodes? No, anymore? we don't want to uh, see them because they look freaking awesome. <laughs> hey, yeah. The new, the new Forge World uh, jump, jump custodes look amazing. <laughs> they do with their winged jetpacks and everything. Yeah. And now they've actually got a download section on the Warhammer community site where they have all the downloads, such as all the rules for all the new, all the Forge World Custode stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So all the various, the different variations of Dreadnoughts they have, the one with the Guardian Spear, the one with the, the Storm Shield. They've got the, the Terminators, you know, the Forge World Terminators with the, uh, the Fire Pikes and uh, awesome, like, better, way better bolt, uh, bolters. That's the one thing I realized as I was going through this. Everything is like strength five or six at minimum. Well, well, like at least in, you know, in the 40 K stuff, like the Veritas Praetors have, you know, hurricane bolters. So strength four, you know, or various things like that. Like everything for these is like strength, strength six AP minus two at like at worst, uh, which is, which is really good. Um, Sounds Eldar killy. Yeah, it kills could kill a lot of things. And I I, I think it's interesting because I was kind of just comparing before we, we got on and it really fills out custodes and like gives them multiple heavy support options, gives them multiple well more elite options, gives them a dedicated transport with the grav tank. It gives them a flyer and a Lord of War, uh, jump marines, another unit of bikes that you can take. I think it's really going to be interesting to see how this uh, fleshes custodes out and makes them, you know, if they become competitive, like on a tournament level with this, because it really does give them a lot of different shooty options they didn't have before. I mean, I, I really like all the new models. And I love that Forge World is like kind of making the rest of the line to fill in the blanks because Forge World does some outstanding stuff. But I don't know that they'll make them competitive because I think unless the new stuff is better than captains on jet bikes that's probably still going to be the go-to for splashing in or using custodes is because jet bikes are just crazy good still yeah well like the new jet bikes i think are the same price essentially as the uh as the the current jet bikes um there are no hq options on here so you know you don't have an option to take like a you know a captain on one of the new jet bikes no, no hq uh, dreadnoughts <laughs> no hq dreadnoughts but it gives but it gives you like more options. So instead of having, you know, like the hurricane bolters or the uh, missiles, you've got Adthratic Devastator, which is uh, two shots, strength six, AP minus three, D3 wounds. And it basically is like your your plasma guns. Um, you've got a Lastrum bolt cannon, which is three shots, strength six, AP minus two. You know, it, it just gives you some other options to be able to take with us. I think you're mostly going to see these. I, I don't. I don't know that any of the options that are listed out here are in and of themselves just, oh, yeah, I'm going to take this, splash it in because it's so good. 
the Teleman Heavy Dreadnought is maybe the only one. If you take him and put two uh, of the Power Fists on him, he's Strength 16, AP minus 3, 4 damage apiece with 5 attacks. So he is basically taking out a knight by himself in a round of combat for 262 points. But he's a heavy support choice, so it's, you know, you'd have to kind of, he'd be hard to just splash in by himself. No, just I'll cut really out the gonna, Land Raider to put him in. Right. Well, I think what you're going to see is I think you're going to see people that run full custodes, which granted there are not a lot. I think people that run full custodes armies are going to now have a whole bunch more options and you're going to see a lot more variety. Because before you, you you would see the same few things, but I think like you've got more options in Terminators, you've got more options for jet, you know, jump troops. You you all of a sudden have a ton of mobility now because your your jet bikes are 14 inches, your jump marines are 12. You've got a 16 inch, yeah, 14 inch on the grav carrier. So like all of a sudden you have all sorts of mobility that you didn't have before. So I think if if you're splashing in custodes jet bikes. You know, with your space marines, I don't think that's going to change. But if you're playing a full custodes list, I really think you're going to start seeing a lot more of this stuff. Which I, I will agree with, and I do like all of the extra additions. I just don't know where I'm going to put them all because I already had a 2,000 point custode list, and so if I'm going to add or swap anything, it will be swapping things out. And yeah, mm-hmm. I might have to say goodbye to the land raider. But ha- but having oh. the, but having the option to switch. Oh no, out. I love the option to swap that out, and and. I, in a way, custodes are almost too powerful to be a normal faction. So I, I like that they're Forge World in a way, because that way you kind of have the introduction to custodes. Here's the book. Here's the main things. And then for the more powerful stuff, go to Forge World because custodes are off the charts powerful. Mm-hmm. That's fair. <laughs> but no, I, I, I really do like that they're fleshing this line out. It's, it, it's a little bit weird to me that it's only through Forge World, but they are kind of a niche army. And these are niche units within a niche army, so... No, that makes me wonder. What's that? If maybe, like, later in the year, like, fall, winter time, we might see Yanari show up there. Except the Yanari won't have anything crazy. Never mind. It's just a thought. (laughs) However, I would not be surprised if when we get the Sisters relaunch, there are a few units that that are Forge World-specific, like, vehicle-wise. Like, I could see the Repressor getting re-released. Or a new version mm-hmm. of the Repressor being a Forge World kit. Yeah. I mean, that just seems to seems like it would make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think we're going to move from there, because I think that is the last of the new things that have come out. Like I said, That should I, be the last of the new started things. When yeah. I started this out, I was like, oh, this has been a light week. No, it's actually been quite heavy. There's actually been a <laughs> lot. But it's it's mostly been like side stuff you know it's gene seer cults is like the first like the big thing that's dropping because we're getting a new faction or you know not new faction but we're getting a faction new codex, new codex yeah. yeah so uh as always all this listener mail is provided by you the listeners and if you want to know how to have your mail read on the air uh we'll tell you how at the end of the segment so first off we have a letter from dustin brown who's a friend of ours and we've met at several events uh dustin writes Hey guys, keep up the good work. However, I have to point out if I wasn't driving this morning, I would have buried my head in my hands about the abysmal guard advice you gave to the IG <laughs> Death Guard or the IG Death Watch player in your recent episode. I won't mention the double night review and zero guard review, however. We're not good at guard. We, admittedly, I, we are not good at guard. And I, I talked with him afterwards and he's like, Yeah, you probably could have recommended these vehicles and and you you made like the whole 
uh, Master of Ordnance thing was a bad choice, and it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, fine. I've just seen a Master of Ordnance used very well against us, so... Yeah, uh, but uh, he's like, yeah, it's kind of a joke choice in the guard codex. I'm like, okay, that's fair. That's fair. We <laughs> so we played right into that. We played right into well, that. But yeah. hey, we told you, like, we we don't dislike guard. We're just no good at it. So, which is why we've got a guard list at the end of the segment <laughs> because I'm a masochist. <laughs> oh my! But he continues on. On a positive note, I picked up my dice. F- I, I just picked up my dice and finally, and they're great. Hopefully I should be blessed with many sixes at the Midwest Conquest, which by the way, he posted a picture of having rolled them. He rolled all 12 and got two ones, two twos, two threes, two fours, two fives, and two sixes. That sounds about like it was how mathematically we average. rolled them. Because yep. when we tried them out, Rob rolled all the sixes and Richard rolled all the ones. <laughs> yep. See, I refuse to believe that that photo isn't doctored because I have not seen the, the, the sixes on my dice yet. They are there. I'm sure they're there. I just haven't seen them. Hey, Kevin, I had quite a few against you. Well, when I roll them, I don't see him. I've never, I don't think I've ever rolled any Do you need to get the dice. GW guide to rolling dice that they put out yeah. for April Fools a few years ago? Because it sounds like you do. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, our our local GW store moved locations, and so they did kind of a store founding event as though they had just opened. Yeah. I picked up a set of the store founding dice they have. They only have skulls on the sixes. It's fantastic. Yay. They are easy to read. <laughs> They're also really nice black with gold pips and then a gold skull on the six. So I actually really like them for GW dice. Nice. He says, speaking of which, have you all thought about how many PL the event would be at Midwest Conquest? Given the significant changes with chapter approved this year and last, the old 20 points to or 20 to one points to PL doesn't quite work out. So the thought of, well, let's do a 2,000-point equivalent of 100 PL won't work. Also, given it's a friendly, why even keep it to that standard? Why not make it something different, like 80, 120, 150 PL? Also, will the rule of three apply? Also, the ETC mission set has a few base rules for making Maelstrom missions less swingy. Uh, Finally, a potentially contentious discussion point. (laughs) A few episodes back, you discussed some tournament teams like to have some friendly competition by branding the current lowest ranked player in some fashion. In that particular episode, I believe the player had to wear a dress, which would have been our friend Alex, who had to wear a dress at the... uh, Renegade Open Friendly. All right, not to get all SJW. However, if we as a community want to encourage more players of all aspects, can such things be off-putting and seemingly degrading to the opposite sex? At Iron Halo, one of the gaming groups used a sash instead, which may be a little less off-putting for those who are unsure of entering a hobby dominated by men. If we are streaming events and hosting them at cons to promote our hobby and encourage new players, should we also be considering how we present ourselves? The LVO is putting restrictions in place for top eight armies to be GW models and well-painted so as to be a positive portrayal of the hobby. Is this any different? I'm curious on your thoughts. Cheers, Dustin. Uh, so first off, we'll talk the Midwest Conquest bit, and then we'll get into the fun topic because, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because the, no one will be offended by by any potential answer we give. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so first off, why 100 PL? Uh, short answer because that's what we played at uh, LVO. Uh, 100 yeah. PL seemed to work out pretty well. We did 100 PL for our. Uh, tournament or practice tournaments here on New Year's. Uh, it our practice games. It, it works fine. It's not meant to be a straight. This is an equivalent of a two thousand point army. A hundred PL is just a nice round number to get in. Roughly, kind of, sort of equal games. And I think that's the other thing to consider about the friendly is the friendly event is not about finely granulated balance between armies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you look at the 100 PL lists we made for for New Year's, 
like I know my lists were all coming in at about seventeen to eighteen hundred points. I think yours were about the same. No, mine were around the two thousand. I think I had a one that was like nineteen seventy, and one was around two thousand. And I know your orcs 70. were over two thousand. My, my orc one list was slightly over two thousand points. Right. Uh, it's, and but like like mine, my my sister's list and my death guard list were both about like one was seventeen fifty or so, and one was like eighteen fifty. If we if we worked it out into points, and of course that also yeah. takes into account war gear, which isn't measured at all in PL. But yeah, the the point of trying to make this oh this is the equivalent of the GT, but we're doing it in power level instead. No, no that's that's really not the point. The point is you've got a hundred PL to make the kind of army you would you want to bring for just to play for fun. I mean that the yeah. friendly is really an event to I mean not to downplay it but it's an event to be played because you want to show up you want to have a chance to win some fun prizes and you want to do something cool with your army do some cool story stuff and have fun doing it it's kind of like the beer and pretzels yeah. of the event yeah i mean yeah, it's it's absolutely. it's kind of beer hammer without the alcohol because we can't use the alcohol in in that event space <laughs> but it's more there for people who do like narratives like painting because that's a big deal for these armies more so than picking out all the points for your army mm -hmm. and, and the point i'll make here is yes especially with all the points drops some armies have like i was excited at new year's i'm like yeah i'll do eldar the the points drop just happened i'm like we're at power level i can't do wraith knights oh darn <laughs> uh yeah points and power level are right now two distinctly different games mm -hmm. so you, you kind of have to view them that way yeah, you know they they are very different beasts at this point. I mean, they always kind of were, but especially yeah. As you know, somebody wrote in last, I think it was last episode. It's like, why haven't you like with with a chapter approved redoing points? Do you think that they should redo PL as well? The honest answer would be they probably should, but at the and in some codexes they have not by changing the data sheets. But when the codex comes out, like the orc boy. Now is a higher PL but cheaper on points, or was it the other way it's around? It's the other way around. Okay, cheaper on PL but more expensive. Yes. So in a hundred PL game, you can fit more boys into an army than you could before. Yes. Which is why yeah. you got to over two thousand. <laughs> 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 but yeah, the the point of the friendly is really not to be. These lists are in fine competitive parity, and that's also one of the reasons why we're doing Maelstrom. Whether Maelstrom is swingy or not is really not the point of, of the tournament, especially considering the fact that who wins or loses is only a third of your score anyway. Yes, yep. there will be somebody who will get best best friendly general, but that's not necessarily going to be the person who's going to get best overall. So it's really a minor thing. So, I mean, yes, you want to play, yes, you want to win, but the point of the, the friendly event is just to go see some cool armies, play against some cool armies, and tell some fun stories and have a good time. So, again, PL for fine balance, you know, the the idea that it's supposed to be the equivalent of the GT, it, it's, it's not. It's not. The only thing that's equivalent is we're playing in the same space and the rounds are the same length. Yeah. That, that's really it. And that's and, just for know, ease of judges. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I'll say is, well, you know, I, I definitely understand the idea that, well, I want to play with as many of my toys as possible. And I and I get that, um, you know, we, in the past, we've basically said we based off what LVO did last year. 100, 100 PL is an easy kind of cutoff point. It'll be interesting to see what the LVO friendly is like this year, because it's still the longer rounds, but it's still 100 PL. 
If I go there and like every match in the friendly is over with an hour and a half left in the rounds, then maybe we'll come back and go, you know, you know what? Maybe we can get 120 PL in the same period of time or something. I don't know that we would, I don't expect that we'd make any changes for this year, but I, I think part of it is with the time that we have and what we want to run, I think that's the good balance point for us so that people aren't rushing to get games finished. But if you want to, you know, if you want to play something, do a friendly tournament and have 150 PL, absolutely go ahead and do it. There's just the same thing. If you wanted to play a, do a, a GT and do thousand point tournaments, that's fine. Just make sure that you adjust your schedule to allow enough time so that people can go through and get, get their games completed in time. Yeah, yeah. Now, as far as like the rule of three applying, yeah, this is still a match play event, effectively. So uh, even though we're using Maelstrom missions, it's still going to kind of fall into the match play of no more than three of a data sheet. Uh, and, yep. we'll, and we'll put that up on the website and make it a little bit more clear. But yeah, it's it's just being done with PL rather than points. Uh, and uh, like if you're doing summoning for chaos, uh, that's going to come out of your PL. Rather, you're going to have to save PL for that rather than points. It, which is how they did it at LVO. So, I mean, it's just kind of this, this just makes army building easier because it's not as finicky, but it does bring its own challenges because units can take up a lot more PL, especially if you increase the size of them past the starting unit. Suddenly they can eat up more PL than they would eat up points. But mm-hmm. that also means like I would, like if you used to only squeeze in, like, like with my sisters, I would take six person squads instead of five. Or, you know, instead of 10, because I didn't have the points for 10. Well, in PL, 6 and 10 cost the same. So I'll take 10 10-person squads, because I can. And it doesn't yep. cost me anything more. So th- look at it that way, th- with the flexibility that you get with PL, being it, allowing you to make the kind of army that you think would be cool on the tabletop. Not the winningest army, necessarily, although you're not necessarily playing to lose either. But what would be cool? What do you want to tell on the tabletop? That's the point of the friendly. Now, getting into the other topic, which is going to be a minefield, but because because what like I said, whatever we say, somebody's going to be mad. Yep. I do think Dustin has an absolute point. I think we because we're used to seeing 40k being a very male dominated uh, game that we kind of, you know, it's easy to kind of fall into a, a boys club style behavior standard. Mm-hmm. So things that would be funny because it's like, haha, that guy's wearing a dress. It's, you know, it's degrading to him because he's wearing women's clothing is something that could be off putting to someone who's like, well, I'm I don't see what's degrading about wearing a dress because I wear a dress all the time because I happen to be female. You know, somebody somebody could see that as being like, that's kind of stupid. That's that's not the kind of behavior I want. I, I, I want to play around. Um that said, I will also say that Alex's wife helped pick out the dress and was completely on board with it. She thought it was funny as hell. So it's danger. It's it's hard to make a blanket statement like, "Well, we don't want to do this because it's always going to be offensive to this group or that group." That said, the fact that Dustin brought up, you know, hey, that this of at Iron Halo they had somebody wearing a sash instead. Now, if I remember right, the sash also was like bright pink and said last place princess or something like that. So I don't know if it's a much better example. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there are I understand, you know, wanting to have have challenges like that where it's like, hey, 
we're we we went into this event as a team and whoever ends up la- placing last has to have some sort of uh penalty i know at midwest conquest uh actually alex's friend uh cheryl who ended up winning our uh our night joust i think she came in last at the last event they all played in so she had to wear a pimp hat for right. most of the uh for most of the event which she what like on the one hand she's like this is kind of stupid but at the other hand it was it was she wore it you know because hey that's what we agreed to whoever came in last so it's one of those things where you kind of have you you kind of have to to play it out i understand you know having standards of behavior and things like that and i'm glad that lvo mm-hmm. and the itc are pushing for that and i also like the idea that hey if you want to place in the top 8 you've you've got to have an army that looks good because everybody's going to be watching. And with stuff getting streamed more often, like the guy in the dress who shows up on the 40 K stream is going to raise some questions. There's going to be some people that are going to comment on that. It really comes down. I, I, I don't want to say on this episode, yes or no, we should, we should not ever like guys should never wear dresses because, you know, as a, as a form of humiliation. I mean, I, my personal feeling is it's not the best look, mostly because guys can't fill out a dress nicely. But <laughs> no, no, it, it's it's it, I I agree with Dustin that it's not the best look for the hobby. It yeah. it does really kind of play out that that boys club kind of fratty, you know, hazing rich, you know, hazing behavior uh, that could be off putting to to if we're trying to open up to new new places uh, and and to new audiences. But that's for that is also for individual groups and events to decide, like what yeah. what is their comfort level, and and how much are they trying to open up to new audiences? I would hope that they're constantly trying to, and it, it just depends on like like I know we have friends who are on very very clearly one side of the. I mean, obviously Alex wore a dress to L, to uh, Renegade Open. Uh, just like uh, our friends at the Flying Monkey Wargaming podcast, one of the images they post on their Facebook regularly is Dunkalicious in a dress because he lost events. So obviously they've decided which which side of this debate they fall on. They're totally comfortable with this, and as long as I think as long as they know the the possible repercussions uh, and the the imp- maybe not repercussions repercussions isn't the right word. Um, the the impression that this can leave in an audience and they can either decide that this is that's the either they don't care and that's fine or they can look at it's like yeah yeah maybe we could tone it back a bit or do something different and like a sash is a a perfect or a funny hat i think those are those are great ways to do it without having to necessarily be quite you know as potentially offensive how about carrying around a spoon a carrying around a giant wooden spoon would be a totally a, a totally great way, uh, but yeah. So I, I'm, I I am a hardcore forkist, so that offends me. <laughs> That's not a knife. This is a knife. No, it's not. It's a spoon. I also you played knife, spoony, spoony before. <sighs> yes, I derailed us. <laughs> yeah, completely derailed us. Yes. But no, but I mean, the, the, the wooden spoon, that, see, the wooden spoon is kind of that fun way of, of kind of like ribbing somebody, but also being like, hey, but we want to make you laugh a bit. 
Just the same way, like, hey, here's our last place, Dreadfleet, because you should play right. something else. <laughs> <laughs> Only the finest games for you, my friend. <laughs> hey, I also got some of um, Age of Sigmar. That's well. true. And I think that there's a statement being made there. What, that it's on par with Dreadfleet? Okay, no, no, no. Hey, no no <laughs> words, not mine. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, any. I I know I'm kind of I'm speaking for myself. I, I didn't. Know, I mean, I don't want to necessarily assume it. I'm speaking for everyone at the table. No, I I agree with the direction you're coming from. I mean, yeah, yeah. I I agree with with pretty much everything you said. The big thing for me is if you can kind of like poke fun at somebody without it being mean spirited and stuff like that. Like, or because at times you can do those types of things and it's it's mean spirited or it's you know it's punching down at people. And I think as long as it's not that and long, like, like if everybody agrees, like if we, if the four of us decided that, okay, whoever finishes last at next year's, you know, uh, renegade open, will do something for the next event we go to. That's fine. Like, I understand that there might be issues with like that event going, well, no, you can't, you know, can't show up wearing that or dress like that. But I, I don't know. I, I want to make sure that people still have can have fun with this and and are still enjoying the game, but I I absolutely think it's correct to consider other people's opinions and other people's uh, thoughts on on the matter as well. So yeah, because I forty k while again it is a mostly I would say you know male centric you know very much like straight male guy activity is how it's been you know how most of the attendance is you have to figure we we have female players we have i'm sure we have trans players i'm Mm -hmm. sure we have people who you know of you know different gendered identities and what have you and while we're you know an event can't cater to everyone and and you i'm not saying that an event necessarily need to bend over backwards to make any one group more or less comfortable at the same time you need to kind of be aware that something like, hey, if you've got a if if you know that you've got a trans player in your in your local play play group and you decide that, hey, haha, where a guy wearing a dress as humiliation is funny, uh, to somebody who's trans and is currently transitioning, that might not come across the same way. Yeah. And so um you need again, I'm not here to necessarily police people's behavior, but just kind of be able to read the room and and be aware of how the stuff you're doing, you know, even if you're, you're, you may not be meaning it to be, uh, you know, to be offensive yeah. or hurtful. You may absolutely not, but just be ready to maybe have that conversation. If somebody comes up and like either, you know, somebody talk to the TO afterwards and the TO is like, Hey, can we not do that at the next event? And, or, you know, or if they approach you and say, you know, this, I know you're doing this for fun, but it's it's not coming across cool. Just be be willing to have that conversation, be open about it, and don't just shut that person down. And, and yeah. yeah, kind of be aware of like what what you're doing. You may not mean it to make somebody uncomfortable, but if it's somebody make if it is making somebody uncomfortable, and the, and you hear about it, maybe be willing to to figure out nah, how can we do this differently. And there are plenty of options for doing it, but yeah, it's it's up to each individual group, uh, and it's and it's up to you know events too. Like I said, I'm not necessarily gonna to put anything necessarily in writing saying you know you cannot wear a dress to our event because this would not be the f- like 
this year's Renegade was not the first time I've seen somebody wearing forced to wear a dress and i say forced more they they agreed to wear a dress because they how they did at a previous event it it's a thing that happens and as long as everybody's kind of on board with it and you're willing to have those conversations for the people with the people who aren't i think you're doing okay but it's also good to look at all uh, 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 there are other alternatives too and i think it's worth addressing those who okay heavy heavy Topic time is over. Now we can move on. Uh, next up is from Red Rabbit. Red writes, Dear Prenenemies. Dear Prenenemies. I'm going to go with that. Uh, let me begin this wall of text by saying thank you for taking the time to read my last email on the podcast back in like September. It was really cool to hear my email being addressed on a podcast that I listen to almost daily. I will admit I fangirled out when I heard that episode, but always. Or, but anyway, on to the email. I'm, I'm glad we could make you squee with delight. Uh, my my question today is regarding painting. I'm not a painter by any stretch of the imagination. I enjoy the gaming aspect of the hobby more, but would like to paint some miniatures soon. I have tried to paint in the past using Citadel paints, and here's what happened. I cleaned the models and waited for them to dry. I then primed them, let them dry, and then applied two thin coats of paint, just enough for tabletop quality. I noticed, however, that when I scooped up my models after matches, that when they rubbed against each other, the paint would scratch off, and after a few models, they after a few matches, they looked like trash. The same thing happened on three consecutive attempts of painting. My question is, is this a mistake on my part, or is this simply part of it? I am pretty gentle with my few models, and I have seen on many Wargaming where they manhandle their miniatures, and they never seem to have that issue. Is there a way to seal the model to keep the paint from scratching? You know, the same way you do to wood furniture after you stain it. I don't know the term for that. I'm not a marine biologist, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Anyway, excuse the newbie question, but I know very little about painting, would like to start, and my searches online have yet to give me any answers. Maybe you guys can enlighten me. As always, you guys are awesome. Never stop what y'all do. Sincerely, Red Rabbit. Well, thanks, Rabbit. Um, so, uh, as far as painting, yes, sealing a mini is absolutely a thing you can do and should do. Yes. Um, especially if you talk about scooping your models up and having them rub against each other. Generally, you want to be careful with your minis anyway, unless you are painting, unless... You play like I know people who play nids and orcs sometimes just like scoop them up and just yeah. dump them into a container. You kind of have to, and Richard. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It, it, even when you're not playing with like a time limit, you still kind of gotta not make the game last all day. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, but yes, yeah, sealing a model is absolutely a thing you can do, and there's a number of tools you can use to do it. Um, I know GW puts out a product I think called Purity Seal. Yeah, which is there. It's basically a spray lacquer. Um, uh, a lot of people swear by Tester Dull Coat. That's a very popular yeah. choice. Uh, these are both uh, aerosol propellant cans. So uh, if you're spraying, you basically just spray a layer over the model, let it dry. Some people do two layers just to they're clear layers uh, and they basically provide an outer, a clear outer shell that doesn't obscure the detail of the model, and but it protects the paint. And it keeps the models rubbing, you know, from like if they rub together, uh, it'll keep them from damaging the paint because that, yeah, that will actually absolutely happen. In fact, I know some people uh, will use, uh, they'll use two layers. They'll use a, gl- a gloss, so a shiny layer, and they'll use a, and then a matte layer of finish. And you can buy these spray finishes. I mean, Krylon makes them, Rustoleum, like yeah. lots of companies make this spray lacquer. And I know some people will do a shiny layer, they'll do a gloss layer, and then they'll do a matte layer on top of that. And the reason they do that is 
as the models, if the models rub against each other and they start seeing that gloss shot come through because it means the matte layer, that flat layer has rubbed off, then it means they know that that they know that they have to reapply it because now that that under layer of protection is is visible. Mm-hmm. And and oddly enough, typically like the gloss uh, sealers are actually usually more hardy. Yes, which and, is another and reason why last you, longer. Yeah. But yeah, the, you definitely want to seal that. If you uh, now you have to watch the humidity and temperature of when you do this because spray lacquers, if they pick up humidity, if they pick up a, a little bit of moisture in the spray, um, they can get they can go from being clear to being frosty, yeah, real fast. And sometimes you can fix that by applying another layer, and it'll kind of like fill in the bubbles that are making that frosty. Yeah. But uh, not not always. Not not always. In, and sometimes it may, like, the more layers or the thicker it, it goes on, like, the more it will, it can affect the color. Yes. That, that you are using. Yeah, because it'll, it'll change how light gets through and hits that paint and then how the color, the light bounces off the paint and hits your eye. So it, it can, like, a lot of times it'll darken certain colors or... I think, it, or flatten them out, kind of dull them out. Right. Uh, that's, yeah, that's one of the things that I have seen where some of the lighter colors, some of the lighter midtones that I've used, and then I'd seal over, and then, like, those lighter midtones, like, have, like, kind of vanished into more the the darker mm-hmm. colors that I had painted. So yeah. I know that some people who just paint, like, show pieces that aren't really meant to go on the tabletop and they don't seal them they, at all. They don't seal them at all. Right. Cause they don't want to yeah. obscure that fine color gradation. Right. Uh, if you at granted you, you say you are painting amateur. So I'm assuming you probably yeah. don't have an airbrush, but, uh, airbrushing the, uh, Viejo makes airbrush, uh, sealants. They make like gloss and matte varnishes, satin varnishes, stuff like that, which that's what I use because I've had, in Missouri, there's approximately one week a year when the humidity is not bad, when it's warm enough, but the humidity is not bad enough to seal. And I can't, I don't want to go through that many cans of dull coat at once. So I tend to spray my models with a, a sealant, uh, with an airbrush. Uh, but yeah, that's, you, you want to seal your models if you can. Uh, the other thing you can do once you've got these models sealed, keep them in some sort of foam storage so they don't rub against mm-hmm. each other much. Yeah. Because the amount of rubbing that they're going to do during gameplay should be so minimal, it really shouldn't cause a lot of damage. I've had models that before I before I sealed my models, I because really I didn't start sealing my models a lot until I started painting my sisters, and because they're metal models, the paint doesn't yeah. bond with the metal really at all. It just kind of layers on top of it, and and because the the models themselves are heavier, yeah. If they do tip over or something like they take a that, little bit that's, more damage. That's more, you know, more ability for the model to like have paint chip off. Yep. Uh, in those cases, I definitely would, you know, that or with when I started working with metal models again, I would I would definitely seal them. But now I've started sealing my plastics as well, just to protect them, just to protect the paint jobs. And but the other thing is, once you've got them, even if they're sealed, they'll still. Like, I've had models still get scratched up from rubbing against each other, even when I've sealed them. And at that point, you need 
good storage. And whether that is something like a KR multi-case foam or you go with like the GW kind of ribbon foam cases or right. or, or the pluck and pull kind yeah. of. Or you, you get battle foam or something like that. I mean, again, I prefer the KR stuff, not just because they're our sponsor, but the reason they're our sponsor is because we, I like their product. The foam yeah. is a lot. Mm-hmm. I find the foam to be softer. Whereas I've actually had models scratched up by the battle foam foam. Yeah. So uh, it's just, it's, it's a, a firmer kind of scratchier foam. Uh, but keeping your models in some sort of foam storage whenever you can. So they're not rubbing against each other. That will help protect that paint job and make it last longer as well. Uh, I cannot say enough about the benefits of good model storage, but definitely you can seal your models. There's plenty of tools to do it. Uh, just look, if you're going to do a Google search, just look for miniature painting seal or miniature painting varnish. Uh, and mm. you'll see plenty of guides on how to do it. Uh, if you want even more specific, like 40K miniatures sealing. And that should give you plenty of tutorials on how to do it because we can describe it, but you, it's best to see somebody do it visually so you can kind of see the effect of wh- what's their technique for spraying and how does it look when it's done? What do you need to look for if you see frosting, how to fix it, things like that. And uh, just to specify, the GW one is called Ministorum Varnish. Uh, I think they switched it out a few years ago. Purity Seal was the old one. Oh, okay. So it's but, Ministorum yeah. Varnish. Yeah. Ministorum Varnish. Okay. That kind of product. Now, GW, like all their spray paint, is going to be way more expensive than if you buy like yeah. Tester's. Tester's Dull Coat, you tend to buy in small cans, but you can buy them at pretty much any hobby store. Right. Yeah. yeah. If they, if they yeah, do model Michaels. car models, they'll have Tester's Dull Coat. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Army Painter yep. also makes a line of, of paints that uh, they've got like those colored primer base coats. Uh-huh. And, and then they also have a sealer, spray sealer. Mm-hmm. Uh, GW also has what they called Ard Coat, which is a brush on. You want to yeah. be careful about that's mostly used for doing gloss effects on models, though, or seal, smoothing an area over before you put a decal on it. Yeah, I wouldn't paint a model entirely in Ard Coat. Uh, yeah, no, As, and especially because Ard Coat's a th- you know it's a varnish, so it's a thicker than most paints. It's a little harder to thin down appropriately, and it will show brush strokes really badly yeah. if you're not careful. Uh, and you don't want that on your on your painted models. You you want uh, something nice and smooth. So, um, but yeah, spray varnish is probably the way to go. All right, next one is from Brian Davis, and Brian writes: Hi, preferred enemies crew. I have been appreciative of your previous replies to my questions about obscure older models, but I have one about more contemporary armies this time around. I love the idea of a big of more big friendly events happening, especially those with theme requirements. Here's an idea I have. If you were going to build a five Imperial Knight army, 2,000 points match play, and then theme paint it as Voltron, what model would you pick for each of the five lions, blue, red, green, yellow, and black? How would you arm them? And how would you spend any spare points on support, if any? I would love it if each of the crew would work something up separately and then compare notes, but I understand if time constraints preclude this. Thanks for all you guys do for the hobby. So is this going to be a homework thing for us? And we I already next time? I already did my homework. Okay. okay. I I know virtually nothing about Voltron, so I'm not good at them. I'm not okay. Good at and this. even though we've done two things on knights, I'm still I'd say a newbie at knights. <laughs> so okay, so here's what I uh, what I did for knights, and, and this is this is just I I threw this together this morning, but it seemed it seemed to work. It comes in at 1994 points, and it is pure knights. There is no support. 
It is, and it is for Questorus knights. So there's no armagers, there's no dominus. It's four or it's five. Okay. It's five regular big knights. So, and really, there was only one configuration that came in at this. Uh, it, there's a couple of ways I could probably shed shed a few points if you wanted to try to squeeze on a, a carapace weapon. But these are all stock knights. They are they are. There's not enough points to customize them at this point. So for the Black Lion, which is the core, the, the center of the body, which has, as Voltron has no arms and legs by itself, I put in a Night Crusader. It's just all shooty. Right. But has, but other than Stompy Feet has no close combat capability. Then for the arms, which would be red and blue, I had Night Gallants. Because, well, one of them is going to have to form Blazing Sword. Right. And then the other one would be the Fist on the other arm. So... So they're each like that. So, the, so, t- so two knight gallants, and also pick them because they are the least expensive of the big knights. And then for uh, green and yellow, which would be your legs, and because the Voltron pilots are referred to, in, at least in the new Voltron series, as paladins, two knight paladins. Again, stock. So there's no melta guns. This is all heavy stubbers all around. So, and then I made the. Uh, since the Black Knight is the Black Lion is in charge, the Knight Crusader is my warlord, and as a character, he ha- has access to Heirloom, so I gave him Endless Fury. So he's got the the better assault cannon. Uh, and then, as far as uh, like household choice, could really be anything, but I picked Hawk Shroud so that they won't degrade. So it doesn't matter how much beating they take; they're still going to be effective. That that was my my five knight. One, you know, one for each lion build. Again, I threw this together quickly. Um, you could trade out like one of the paladins for an errant if you wanted more points. Uh, which it's about. Let's see, a paladin is four hundred nineteen, whereas a uh, errant is three ninety three. So you'd have about twenty four more points. You'd have enough to maybe throw on like uh, an Icarus cannon onto like the Crusader. Or maybe swap out one, like swap out a a, a stubber for a, a melt gun on one night. But uh, y- the other possibility, and I didn't play around with this too much, would be um, doing uh, like a knight and then four armatures. That that was kind of my first thought was the main knight being the body, then having the four armatures being two sets of two. Or I yeah. guess they could all be individual. Well, yeah, do, well you do like one pair of Helverins and one pair yeah. of uh, Warglaves. With the same logic behind the arms and legs. Right. And I, then it, you can make a bastion for the castle that they all have. Oh, there you from. go. There you go. I don't know how you'd fit the mice into it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, but yeah, that would be another way to do it. I, it, it would... It wouldn't get you. It only get you three command points instead of six. But then you'd have points left over for doing, uh, like, if you wanted to do support at that point, throw in whether it's guard or mechanicus or something like that for your uh, for your your command point battery. And at that point, your black your your black lion could even be like a uh, a castellan, something oh, really yeah. big it, and powerful. That, I like that idea. Yeah, so that that would be your big guns, and, uh-huh. then, and then each of the armatures can just connect to an armor. Like. Yeah, there you go. They're <laughs> armagers, but we don't oh have legagers. <laughs> you knew it was coming. So yeah. <laughs> so doing doing the castellan, uh, two helverins and two warglaves is one thousand two hundred and seventy two points. So you have a lot of points left to play over with for support yeah. options. Uh, can we drop in a Manta? No. Oh, darn. 
No, because a mantis is twenty five hundred points by itself. And it's also tau. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and also tau. Yeah, but also <laughs> way over points. <laughs> and of course, my my thought just immediately comes into like like modeling and like the hobby aspect of like uh, I don't really want to do knights. I'm going to do orcs. I'm going to take a, a bunch of the new war buggies and paint them the different colors. <laughs> and so they'd all be the, their individual lions and then make like a, a knight valiant <laughs> and, and convert it up using like the kits for those, for those war buggies. <laughs> that would be awesome. To make a giant Voltron. That would be out awesome. of the war buggies. Of course, yeah. the thing is, if you have five knights that form Voltron, what would it form like a Reaver <laughs> Reaver class Titan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it should. <laughs> Another possibility, and I don't think this would actually. I'm not sure how this would actually work in match play. You'd have to figure out a way. It'd, it'd have to be like a spearhead detachment and a and a stand or and a super heavy auxiliary, a renegade knight, and five Mother fiends as your alliance. <laughs> hmm. Like, but the re- like the renegade knights has to be in reserve, so the five lions are there, and then boom, they form Voltron. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily a good idea, but it was just one that popped in my head. But uh, yeah, so there, there's a couple of ways you could do this. I think the more effective one would be the Castellan and the Armagers, because then you have a lot more points to play with for other upgrades. Yeah. But if you just want to do like pure Questorus knights. Crusader, two gallants, two paladins will get you like right at two thousand, or you know, within like five, six points of it. All right, next up from Ray Weberund. Ray writes, "Hi, preferred enemies. Thank you for your great podcast and the time you take on our questions. Your answers often get me to think about the game in new and different ways, even if it is just new idea for an army. So here are my questions." I play Sisters of Battle and have tried out the Beta Army. I was wondering if you could do an Act of Faith on a unit that is a tran- in a transport. They're technically not on the field, but the Act of Faith rule on pa- page 78 on Chapter Approved 2018 does not specify that it needs to be on the table. Could I use Hand of the Emperor on a Dominion squad so they can jump out of an immolator to melt a knight into the ground? I also run some fun detachments, and while I don't, n- while I know I don't need an HQ in them anymore, since the big FAQ... I like to occasionally run a Vanguard with Legion of the Damned or Sisters of Silence with the Sisters or my Death Watch. However, I would like to get my CP. My question is, can I use a librarian from the Index to go with the Legion? Do I need to go out and buy the Space Marine Codex just to run one model? Both have the Adeptus Astartes function key, or faction keyword, but the Legion is not in the Codex, so I just wanted your thoughts. By the way, I run a Primaris Psyker with the Sisters of Silence to get the command point, again because they both have the Astra Telepathica. Thank you for your time, and keep up the awesome podcast, Ray in Alaska. P.S. I now have some Mechanicus, and because of thoughts gleaned from your podcast, I am getting dwarves to make a blended Imperial squat army. <laughs> Thanks, I think. <laughs> That's him finishing up with thanks, I think. I blame you, Dennis. I'm doing nothing. I'm just resetting clocks over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's all. Uh, so to answer the first question, which uh, page 78, Acts of Faith. Um, so to attempt an Act of Faith, select a unit in your army that has the Act of Faith ability. Uh, it you're right, it does not generally, it does not specify they have to be on the table, but in general, and I'm going to try to find the FAQ on this, uh, if an R, if a unit is not on the table, it's usually not allowed, like if it's in reserves or something, it is not allowed to be chosen for any ability. And I believe that's in actually the core rule book. 
So embark. Uh, this is on the this is in the transports uh, subheading. So in your big rule book, this is going to be on page one eighty three, or it's on the in the small foldouts. It's near the morale phase section. So on transports, embark. If all models in a unit and their move within three inches of a friendly transport, they can embark within it. Remove the unit from the battlefield and place it to one side. It is now embarked inside a transport. Embarked units cannot normally do anything or be affected in any way whilst they are embarked. Unless specific and less specifically stated, abilities that affect other units within a certain range have no effect while the unit has that has the ability is embarked. So in general, no one if a unit is embarked in a vehicle, it cannot be affected by anything. It's not it is not there to target. I mean it sounds to me like it would go from the uh the ruling in the in the rule book that yeah that you can't be targeted by that unless it specifically says you can yeah and there's nothing in the beta codex that says you can target units that are specifically in in vehicles or in transports so right and I would ev- say no yeah every single FAQ on that I'm finding talks about how anything that's embarked it does not you know other than like you can deploy inside some like you can deploy embarked in something but yeah it's Everything specifies like, oh, yeah, if they have our abilities, they don't affect anything. They don't count as contesting an objective. Uh, they can't fire at something unless you they're in a transport that would allow them to. But usually, uh, if a unit is embarked in a vehicle, it doesn't exist. It is not on the table at all for, for any intent or purpose. And so, I mean, like, even they specify that uh, with the sudden death rule and flyers don't count against, you know, you don't count as having models for sudden death. If a unit is embarked on a flyer, like if you've got a unit in a Storm Raven, they don't count as being a unit on the table. They don't exist. So, um, so yeah, if uh, something, something is targeted, uh, or, if, or if you have a unit that's embarked, such as the Dominions inside an emulator, no, you cannot use Hand of the Emperor on them at the start of the movement phase because they aren't on the table to target. Now, as far as the uh, running uh, Legion of the Damned or Sisters of Silence with your with uh, your Deptus Rotas or Death Watch, technically um, you can't uh, like with the Legion of the Damned. I think I'd have to look at the rules for Legion of the Damned in Imperium One because that's the only place where we have them. And look at their keywords. I mean, technically you could use you could use Astartes as the keyword. It wouldn't count as a Space Marine detachment because it wouldn't have the chapter keyword. That they've been mm-hmm. pretty consistent on that. Well, and that just means you wouldn't get your uh, like chapter, chapter tactic, right? But that does one. Legion of the damned even have a chapter tactic? Uh, no, they don't. So, eh. so yeah, Legion of the Damned. They do have the Adeptus Astartes. They have yeah, they have the Adeptus Astartes keyword. So. It is a faction keyword, and that is Adeptus Astartes is a legal faction keyword for you know because it's not Imperium mm-hmm. for match play, so it's it would be legal to have a detachment with that. But you wouldn't get any you wouldn't get any uh yeah chapter tactic on your your librarian if you wanted to put that in. So kind of just going off of that, I mean, I know you specifically mentioned the index librarian, but if you have an HQ from Dark Angels or Blood Angels or Space Wolves that you wanted to use as well, as long as they have a Stardex keyword, you could drop them in there. You wouldn't get, like I said, you wouldn't get the chapter thing for for that unit. But if you have an HQ from any of those, 
Space yeah. Marine chapters, you could drop it in. Yeah, yeah. Any, anything that would have the Adeptus Astartes keyword would be a viable choice. Um, the, que- the, the main issue is that, like, you obviously wouldn't get, like, the bonus of this accounts as this detachment. So it also, mm-hmm. it wouldn't unlock any Space Marine stratagems or Blood Angel stratagems or Death Guard, you know, or, you know like, yep. Dark Angel stratagem, like, whatever you put in it. You wouldn't get act. It wouldn't access activate those stratagems. You wouldn't get their chapter tactic if they had one. Nor would you get like the bonuses that some of the chapters, like Blood Angels or Dark Angels or Space Wolves, get if it's a detachment made entirely of those. That that would be the one limitation. Um, now, as far as like uh, Sisters of Silence, um, Sisters of Silence do have the Astra Telepathica keyword, the, the, that faction keyword. Uh, which you could use a Premier Psyker. That that's a legal play if you wanted. So yeah, you you could you could do that. You could do that. Um, uh, Premier Psykers would like if you used a Premier Psyker, it'd be the Premier Psyker from the Guard Codex. Yeah, because the the newest data sheet for Premier Psyker, Weird Vein Psykers, and Astropath is in uh, Astro Militarum Codex now. So yes, you could use a. Uh, yeah, Premier Psyker, and they don't have a regiment keyword anyway, so they don't. So you wouldn't have, even have to worry about that. So yeah, that would those would be legal options. Again, it wouldn't. And, and Sisters of Silence don't have any stratagems anyway, so you wouldn't unlock. It, it would not be considered like an Astra Militarum stratagem, so or you know, or detachment, so it wouldn't unlock guarded stratagems either. I think that's that's the main thing to consider, but. It would be a it would be a legal detachment choice even for match play. So yeah, a Premier Psyker or a uh, a librarian, whether you're playing either Sisters of Silence or Legion of the Damned, that's valid HQ choices. Just be aware of what it doesn't unlock. That'd be the main thing. All right. Uh, next up from Matt Redmond. Matt writes. Hey guys, I'm running a narrative event on February 2nd, which I this will only probably get out a day or two before that, so I apologize. <laughs> uh, hey guys, I'm running a narrative event on February 2nd based around the or based about the orc pirate warlord Nazdreg Ug Ugdrub and his teleported technology after successfully invading an imperial shrine world in search of a fortune. I wanted to have a rule for every table the orcs are a part of to demonstrate the idea from the narratives found on the 40k wiki about him, so I came up with this. What are your thoughts? And quote each battle round before their movement phase the orc faction will roll 3d6 if the total is equivalent to 14 or more the orc faction may choose to use their teleporta to bring back a dead friendly orc faction unit 6pl or less that is not a character and if the final total is 18 a separate option is available to select a single enemy unit 6pl or less and not a character to be teleported to wherever they may find their doom if an enemy unit is selected from these options the unit is considered dead for game mechanic purposes a command point may be used to re-roll the single d6 made for the scenario. The second result must be accepted. If a friendly unit is selected to return, it may be placed anywhere on the board that is more than 9 inches away from enemy models. This is to portray the ramshackle orc technology as many times as it as many times it can be as deadly as it is beneficial. When the dodgy technology works, it can lay waste to even the mightiest foes or bring about more raging boys to the fight. Yeah, I, I think this is, for for a narrative event, this yeah. is a, a really cool rule. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I would almost consider m- maybe adding in some sort of contingent to where, like, if the orcs lose their game, like, maybe 
their next game, the the teleporters jammed and they just wouldn't get to use it, mm-hmm. or or they wouldn't get to use it. Maybe it only works on a sixteen. Yeah, it gets harder for them to use. Um, I would probably also not have it work on the first round. Maybe. Well, yeah, you, I don't think you you wouldn't want to allow it to the first round. It, because that would also get rid of that lucky 18 on the first turn to just, like, kill an enemy unit. Right. I mean, because on first turn, there's probably not going to be a lot that's going to come back anyway. Right. So, it, yeah. But just, like, let's say your opponent goes first and wipes out, like, manages a lucky shot to wipe out a unit of boys or something. Right. In shooting. Yeah, you shouldn't get that, be able to get that unit back top, you know, on your first turn. But yeah. later on, you could get it back. Yeah. And 14 or better on a 3D6, the odds of that aren't so high that I'm it really worried about it breaking. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, the one thing I might do is if you rolled three ones, you can't use it for the rest of the game. Mm, yeah, it shorts out. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Be so, cool too. So it's not likely to short out because orc teleporter technology tends to work, but if you roll triple ones... Right, and you can... You've got the command point off. You've got option. the command point for, for a re-roll, so... Yeah. That that would be a very slim possibility of that happening. But, but it could yeah. But it could but happen. It could happen. Yeah. Just like if you rolled a 17, you might go ahead and spend the command point to see if you can get an 18. Right. And take, take out enemy unit. Of course, you might also end up getting a 13 and it doesn't trigger at all. Yeah. Uh, I might also put a power level cap on the unit that they kill uh, they do it's six it P- it's six pl and no characters yeah okay it, so it's that's just for what's coming back no no it's, it's for both no, that's, both? that's okay. on both it, yeah, yeah. if the final both. total is 18 okay. a separate option is available to select a single enemy okay. unit six pl or less not a character okay yeah okay I so it's that. the same restriction on right. both right okay yeah that makes sense yeah no i th- i think that's fine i think yeah. that's fine and yeah it, again it's it's probably going to trigger maybe once or twice a game. It'll mostly just be there to bring back orcs. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I would do is yeah, put in some chance for it to fail. To fail for the you know for the, if an eighteen is really good, have a three be really bad. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, I think it's fine. I think it's fun. And yeah, very, for narrative, it's not a big, it's not a big deal. And if the narrative is going to be mostly orc focused anyway. It would be weird if only orcs player, depending on what the makeup of the campaign was, if only orc players had access to something and nobody else did. But if it's a campaign mostly about like an orc wall crashing into a world, I'm fine with giving the orcs a little something that's, like I said, might trigger once or twice. Yeah. All right, next up from James Eggers. James writes, Hi guys, been a while and I have a question for you. With how fluid the 8th edition rules have been since the edition's release, how do you keep track of all the current rules? As it stands, we have the core rules, latest chapter approved, codices, errata and commentary, big FAQs, campaign books, and now White Dwarfs and even Warhammer community pages, all being a source of new and or beta rules. We complained about the number of books we took with us in 6th and 7th edition. However, 8th seems to be comparable to a game of old 2nd edition D&D. Is there any resource out there that exists to help consolidate or keep track of what is the latest rules for the game? How do you guys manage this as TOs and, or, and event organizers? Um, digital copies help. <laughs> yeah. As someone I mean, who's played second edition AD&D, it is not nearly that bad. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it is starting to get bad. Uh, OGL Pathfinder like mashups get that bad, especially when yeah. like Pathfinder 
at, like official Pathfinder books reference some random third like, and this book is found in the, the rules for this enemy are found in this green Ronin no- or supplement from like five years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it, it can get pretty bad. Yeah. So we're not there yet. Uh, I think the fact that anything that's showing up in White Dwarf is going to be either tend to be faction limited, like the Imperial or the uh, Crimson Fist thing. That that they had the, in January. Yeah. That really only applies if you're a Crimson Fist player. So right. you really only need to worry about it if you're doing that. As a TO, at a big event, you want to have all the rule book. You want to have the materials available, and that's where digital copies really help. At that point, it's just having the stuff together in one place, whether that's on an iPad or a laptop. Uh, for the any given army, like... All I need to really have available for, like, let's say my Tau is I need to have my Tau Codex. I have my core rulebook, which could also just be the, um, like, the battle primer for most of the rules, just in case I have a rules question. I need to know my Tau FAQ. I I need to have a copy of that available just in case. And I need to know the point totals from the latest chapter approved because the latest chapter approved, other than, like, the eight as a Tau player, didn't really have much in the way of like codex specific stuff. So I would just need to know my point totals from there, which is really just for army construction, and that should be checked before the event. So I don't need a whole lot. Uh, if I'm playing my sisters, then I do need to have the latest chapter approved because that's where my codex is. Um, campaign books, again, only apply if you're using the elements of from one of those campaign books. Yeah, we're kind of getting back to where we were with 6th and 7th. But I think it, it's, do you look at this as this is the stuff I need for every army in the game or is this the stuff I need as a player for just my army? As a TO, yeah, you do kind of have to have that stuff available. But that's also why you tell players, if you're, like, if you're playing a codex or you're playing a particular army, I want you to have everything you need for that army on mm-hmm. you. Because if we're going to do a rules question, I don't want to have to run back to the rules desk and look stuff up. You should have the rules ready to go for me to adjudicate. The FAQ, like the main FAQs, I can have available, but everything else, that's kind of on the players. So it's up to the players to have the materials that support their army with them at an event. Uh, otherwise, but for friendly play, yeah, you just kind of need to have the stuff that applies to your army kind of available. Yeah, and most anything that appears in the, like the Warhammer community page is, is generally ends up being printed somewhere right right so, that, yeah. the, that's why the like the latest chapter approved is generally a good you know they're going to collect all the stuff that's been you know made available for download or or like i think the new stuff like the the rules they put in like the crimson fist rules will probably show up in chapter approved 2019 same way that renegade yeah. knights did yeah, yeah. So, yeah, all this stuff will get collected in print eventually. So that's one of the reasons why having chapter approved, a yearly chapter approved update is kind of really nice because it does consolidate that stuff into one book. All right. Next up from John Baker. John writes, hey, guys, happy new year. Have a rules question for you. Say I have a tactical squad in combat with Hormigons. The second round of combat during my charge phase, a Swarm Lord heroically intervenes into the tacticals. Can the tacticals swing against the Swarm Lord? They wouldn't have been able to charge him as they were already in combat. Is it free playtime for the Swarm Lord? As always, keep up the great work. Um, and since they're already locked in combat, so they didn't charge this turn, uh, if somebody moves up within an inch of them, they, they can, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, they can yeah. swing. They can swing at the swarm lord. Yeah. yeah. That's now, a- now, if this was a case, they, 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 he specified second round of combat. If the tactical squad had charged into the hormigons and then the swarm lord had had intervened in, yes. then no, they couldn't take a swing at him because right. they didn't charge him. But since we've already established the combat's ongoing, and it's probably the hormigons that charged anyway because yeah. that's what they do. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can take a they can take a swing at anybody that gets close to them. All right, next up from Patrick Day, and this one was from uh, Twitter, as Patrick is at Tabletop PhD. Uh, Patrick writes, I can't seem to beat Death Guard. How would you build a Primera-centric, though need not be exclusive, army that was designed to stop Death Guard? I play Dark Angels, and the Azrael Hellblaster Castle can't seem to stop his Terminators. Deathwing Knights failed, too. We play 1,500 points. Who, uh, if the, uh, if the, uh, help the plasma brick, if the Azrael plasma brick isn't getting it done, mm. I, I, I don't know. I mean, granted, the, we're, t- I'm assuming we're talking, uh, Blightlord Terminators and they're nasty. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause the thing is, uh, you can overcharge your, uh, you can overcharge your plasma, but you're not going to be wounding them on twos cause they're tough five. Yeah. Blightlord Terminators, tough five. Two wound, I mean, two wounds each, which with uh, weapons of the Dark Age, you're doing three damage a piece. So mm-hmm. if you can, if you can land a wound, you've got a good chance to kill them. But you're not wounding them on twos; you're wounding them on threes. So I mean, I would definitely have a lieutenant nearby, so you can, if you don't already, so you can reroll any ones on the on the two wound because you want to stick those wounds. Um, but you also have to affect, you know, they're in Cataphracty Terminator. They've got a four up and vulnerable. They've got five toughness. They've got disgustingly resilient and two wounds each. There's not a lot you can do that's going to do more damage at that point. I mean, I almost think the other, the, the best way to go about it is just to try, you know, since they're so resilient and so tough, if, if, uh, plasma isn't working, kind of go the other way and just do massive amounts of bolters. Um, you know, with the new Bolter uh, discipline beta rule, you you're able to static gunline put a lot more shots downfield. Um, if you take if you wanted to keep it Primaris themed, aggressors with the bolts uh, bolt gauntlets, you know, take those out there and just and just basically throw shots downfield at them. And the one thing you have is you have the advantage you have is that you are way more mobile than they are because the Blightlord Terminators move four inches. I think with yeah. the cataphract determinator. Yeah, armor. they're slow. So you're able to, if you're able to just throw a bunch of shots at them, you can then kind of just outmaneuver them the rest of the time and not worry about killing those terminators. Depending on how they're kitted out, most of the terminator stuff is either, you know, bolters, combi bolters, or the plague spewer, which is a short range weapon, or melee weapons. So as long as you can kind of withstand the, you know, I assume they're going to deep strike them in close enough, you know, nine inches away. As long as you can kind of withstand that first turn, I think you've got, you can just, your best bet's probably just to ignore them, you know, and throw, throw pop shots at them with as many, just as many bolters as you can. If, if, you know, if you're not having luck with, uh, with plasma guns. Yeah. And this is a case where overcharging the plasma really is not going to make that much of a difference. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, l- let's, because like your your plasma, yeah, your plasma incinerator, your standard plasma incinerator, it's rapid fire, 
it's got i mean if they're going to get close enough to you where it's where it's an issue that they've got a rapid fire range of like 15 inches to double up shots but they're it's strength seven which is going to be as good as strength eight against toughness uh against tough five uh it's still minus four ap which is still going to hit a four up and vulnerable it's not going to get any better than that the one downside about throwing a lot of bolter shots at them is you're bouncing off their two up armor at that point which might be an issue but it just depends on if you can do enough shots to make it matter yeah i'm just thinking like your your best bet may be just to throw just to make them make as many saves as possible because you will eventually fail them right I would go ahead and, I mean, I'd still use the Osreal brick. I think it's still a good tactic. Um, but what you might combine it with, like you said, is some mobility. So the Osreal brick can be moving away. And on turns that you move, you don't supercharge because you don't, you don't want the minus one to hit, but it's not going to make that big of a difference. The rest of the army, I mean, that's where something like, like Ravenwing bikers, mm-hmm. you know, cause again, and you know, you, it's not. There's not a lot in the uh, in, in the Marine Codex or you know the Dark Angel Codex that's gonna be Primaris focused and do any better than Hellblasters will at at them. Uh, but Ravenwing have the mobility that they can kind of play keep away, and they can you know they're bringing now you know always double tap bolters and some of them can have plasma guns. You could do Ravenwing knights and have. You have the Black Knights and have uh, the um, you know have plasma talons on their bikes, so you're you're doing more plasma shots there. Uh, so the one advantage, if you're playing at fifteen hundred points, you should have more models than they do. Yeah, well, yeah, so you, you definitely have, will. You, know, you definitely will have the advantage there, even if you use Primaris. But yeah, because um, to basically, I mean, it depends on how how big a unit they're taking. But I can't imagine they're. I imagine they're only taking five man units of Terminators. A ten man unit at fifteen hundred points would just be way too expensive. But I, yeah, just volume of shots. And grant, granted, if you're putting all your shots into the Terminators, you're not dealing with other stuff on the table. Uh, I mean, a Redemptor Dreadnought with either the Macroplasma Incinerator or the Heavy Onslaught Gatling Cannon, which is like 12 shots, strength five. So it's at least it's wounding on fours, AP minus one. You know, just trying to, again, like you said, just put a flurry of shots in them and just make them make as many saves as they can and just try to whittle them down. But. Yeah, there's, I mean, the other thing would be um, you could support them with uh, flyers instead. Because, uh, yeah. like, you use the, which one is it? The uh, dark, use dark talons. Two hurricane bolters, which, again, are now always putting out the maximum number of shots. So, two, you know, 12-shot hurricane bolters. And then the rift cannon, which is strength 10 which will wound them on twos and does three damage a piece and can do mortal wounds and they've got the stasis bomb so they can do mortal wounds when they fly over those are about the the best things you're going to have to deal with this uh you don't have a ton of ways to put out mortal wounds except for your librarians so you might take a primaris psyker and just try smiting them as well, because then their armor and their invulnerable save don't matter, and then you're just dealing with the disgustingly resilient. So that might be something you throw into the Azrael brick as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're already using some of the toughest weapons you have, so all you can do is use something that's a bit tougher. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, just volume of shots. Volume of shots, throw as many things as you can, and just whittle them down and hope that if they get up to you 
I mean, granted, they still, like, if they get within enough range, they might make the charge. But then again, you're Dark Angels, so you reroll ones on Overwatch. So, thanks to Grim Resolve. That, that's a, that's about the best you can do. Uh, Blightlord Terminators can be a tough nut to crack. Uh, so you're, you're doing what you can with them. Like, yeah, Dark, they mentioned, uh, Deathwing Knights. Uh, Deathwing Knights are like, the problem there is they are all close combat Terminators. And they're going to have a harder time wounding the Blight Lords than vice versa. Because the Deathwing Knights yeah. are, again, they're only toughness four. The Blight Lords are toughness five. And they do have Storm Shield, so at least they've got a three up in Vuln. I mean, that would be the other thing is I'm surprised the Deathwing Knights aren't at least, at least able to hold them long enough. Because if they can just slow the advance of the the blight lords and yeah you'll probably lose a couple of knights along the way but then have them fall back and open up those now hopefully thinned out a bit blight lords for shooting that's something else you can do you don't necessarily need to look at like well the deathwing deathwing terminators aren't winning the fight and that's not necessarily what they're meant to do in this case it's just more you need a speed bump yeah and they're they're solid speed bumps mm-hmm all right, and then our last letter is our list review for the episode, and this is from Ben Dake, and Ben writes, Hello, Preferred Enemies crew. I love your show and have been listening since 7th edition. The friendly conversation about playing tournament level 40k is refreshing and definitely encouraging to someone who may be curious about dipping their toes into those waters. Currently, all of my games of 40k are more narrative-focused and have a more pickup feel than structured tournament setting. However, I would like to start attending more events solely for the purpose of meeting new people and making new friends. I have no delusions of grandeur about becoming some kind of GT champion or anything close to that, but I would like to present my opponents with a list they may have not seen before and give them an inter- interesting and engaging games. My general strategy is to allow the Cadian Brigade to eat up space on the board and be the horde control element of my list. Okay, so let me read the list and then I'll get into his strategy. Uh, so his list is a uh, guard brigade, Cadian, uh, with three company commanders, uh, one with Grant, the Grand Strategist Warlord trait, uh, two with uh, relics, uh, the Relic of Lost Cadia and the Laurels of Command. Six ten-man guard squad, just stock, or you know, ten infant or six infantry squads, all stock. Uh, five platoon commanders for his elites. Three units of rough riders, uh, all with four rough riders, a rough rider sergeant, and a rough rider with a melt-a-gun. One, two, three, four, five, three base uh, mortar teams for his heavy weapons, for his heavy support. Then he has a spearhead detachment for space wolves with a rune priest with a jump pack and the wolfenstone, which he would need to spend a CP on the relic for that one, which, because he's only spent one for uh, heirloom of conquest. So he won't get a free, deta- he won't get a free war, uh, relic on the uh rune priest because he doesn't because it's not his warlord isn't space wolves and then a unit of wolfen with uh two great frost axes two with thunder hammer and storm shield a four wolfen and then a wolfen pack leader and then three units of heavy support uh one uh long fangs all heavy bolters one long fangs, all last cannons, and one set of long fangs, all with bolt guns. And then finally, a Katachin Lord of War Shadow Sword. And that's, this comes in at 2,000 points on the nose. So for strategy, he writes, 
My general strategy is to allow the Cadian Brigade to eat up space on the board and be the horde control element of the list. The platoon commanders will babysit a heavy weapon squad each, so all of my mortars can be re-rolling hits, or one's the worst. I also gave my company commanders the extra relics because blobs of chaos infantry are a thing, and it's always good with guard to be able to issue more orders. I feel like the Rough Riders are an oddball choice, but with their mobility, I feel like they could be used to grab objectives late or pick obviously weaker units and take them out. As with the Meltas, they could hunt light armor. Although, aside from the long fang with just bolters, I could theoretically start every Space Wolf unit off the board without flank or jump pack, and keep them safe for a turn. The last cannons will do obvious damage, but the stratagem combinations of D3 mortal wounds per hit, plus reroll hits, plus ignore all negative modifiers to hit, make the heavy bolter long fangs a viable defense against knights. Maybe not more than one, though. The rune priest's job is to cast the minus one to hit on the biggest shooting threat, and the Fury of the Wolf Spirits turn himself into a blender, and Wolfen will go, are going to do what Wolfen do. I would also use the Shadow Sword as night defense, as I, and I was struggling with making it Katachin, re-roll a die, or Talarn, keep it safe for a turn, but ultimately settled on the re-roll. Thanks for your feedback. So, again, we admit we are not good at guard. Because um, <laughs> the, fi- like, the five platoon commanders and five heavy support kind of threw me at first. Yeah, so is that... Is he allowed? Is that even something they're able to do? Because I was thinking the rule of three applied since they're not troops. Uh, that is true. So he would not be able to. Um, so unless there's some reason, unless there's some way around that that I don't know. Nope, nope. There's not. So so we are, are <laughs> we're already looking at a slightly illegal list. <laughs> so the, so what I did, and this was because I'd built this ahead of time, just and I I still have the extra platoon commanders because I didn't catch that there were two extras. But I did notice there were two extra heavy weapon squads. So what I did is I removed two two of the heavy weapon squads, and then down in the Space Wolf detachment, he's got a unit of long fangs, uh, five heavy bolters, and uh, you know uh, the the battle leader the and the battle leader, and then he's got one that was four last cannons pack leader, and one that was basically just bolters. Um, so what I did is I went through and I, the points that I saved on the heavy weapon squads, I added missile launchers to all four of those long fangs, and it came out to exactly 2,000 points. Okay. So it's the same amount of points, and those missile launchers allow you to do kind of the same thing as the mortars. So you still have you still have a good amount of range. You still have the ability to fire the frag or crack missiles, so you've got a couple different options there. And you actually wind up getting probably more effectiveness out of it because you can split, split fire a little bit easier and – the long fangs are better at shooting than a, than a mortar team would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even with the re-rolling ones, but yeah, the, mm-hmm. but yeah, you, you are limited to three, three platoon commanders and three heavy weapon squads. And you took out the, the two, uh, platoon commanders as well. No, I, I hadn't t- taken those out. So taking those out, it's, it gives you, uh, 42 points. Yeah. So that could be another, another Wolfen. Cause the, cause the one thing I'll say with the pack of Wolfen I like them being in here. You're only running five bodies. That's very unlikely to matter much. Well, let's see. It's because it's well, it's because it's a unit of five. Okay. Two with great frost axe. Okay. Yeah. The way, okay. The way, the way it was described was a little bit weird. Okay. So there's two wolfen with frost axes, two with thunder hammer storm shield, and then the pack leader with frost slots. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. You could add one more and that gets you up to 1986 and then potentially give them, I'm trying to think what I can do here. Uh, 1986. Uh, that's still not enough points to add a frost axe. Yeah. So the, yeah. Even yeah. All of the 
all the weapon options, even frost claws, like are still that puts you one point over. Ugh. But even as such, it's still only one additional wolfen. Uh, I mean, you could go back into the mortar squads and add more more bodies to the mortar squads. Yeah, because each one's eleven points. If you had three of them, you could yeah, you could add a fourth mortar to each one and have a few points left over. I mean, in general, I kind of going through the you know the idea that he has on here because the one thing is with a lot of the there's not really a lot to change in the guard detachment other than stripping out those because you need to have three units of fast, you need to have three elites, six infantry. So there's, you know, three heavy. So it's to keeping that as a battalion, there's not really a lot or a brigade. There's not really a lot that you can change up there. Maybe putting those extra points in there for you've got heavy weapon squads. I don't know that Rough Riders are the best choice, but I also know that Rough Riders are better this edition. They have been in the past and they're they're cheap. They're probably cheaper than some of the other options. So because it's 73 points for each unit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, yeah. Which, uh, to kind of, since these are, these are index only units, they didn't make it into the codex because they don't currently sell models for Rough Riders. So, to kind of give a little bit of context for, for these, they are, they have 10 inches of movement, weapon skill ballistic skill four, uh, t- strength toughness three, two wounds apiece, five up armor save because guard. The big thing on them is they have the hunting lance, which is, they can only attack with it on a turn in which they charged. Which it makes them strength five AP minus it's strength five AP minus two D three uh, damage. It's one attack each, mm-hmm. and then uh, then then you know a melta gun in there. Replacing those with something like sentinels might be a good idea, um, but at the same time, like if he's putting three units of rough riders in here, and he specifically mentioned that he wanted to kind of come at his opponent sideways a little bit, it's kind of hard for me to recommend that like oh take them out they're not good especially since I don't know if there's, you know, if they're compared to some of the other options, if they're so much better or worse than other options, they're, they're clearly in there because it's something that he has, you know, I assume he probably has models or conversions or whatever that he wants to use them for. So I, it's kind of hard for me to tell, tell him to take those out, but that's, that would be the only area that I maybe I'd look at is, you know, switching out what you're doing with the, the fast attack choice, but, I mean, otherwise, I think it'll definitely do what you want it to do. It'll definitely fill up space on the board and do, you know, be area control and be a lot of targets that that people have to to folk, you know, to take out. Right. Uh, yeah. So the yeah the Rough Riders they have flanking maneuvers, which basically they at the end of your, your movement phases, the unit can join the battle. Set it up so that all models in the unit within seven inches of a battlefield edge of your choice and more than nine inches away from enemy models. So yeah, they can come out from any any side which is useful whereas like scout sentinels they get a vanguard move basically like a free nine Mm -hmm. inch move so they're not they're not great because they're made of tissue paper and the thing is you're not going to yeah they move 10 inches but you're not going to get advantage of that on the turn they come in and i my concern is that the rough riders are going to get shot to pieces before they do anything yeah because they're not tough they're not you know they don't have armor really. Um, they they're going to show up. You hope they get a charge. If but even if they do, they're only strength five because they're charging guardsmen. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how how useful that is. I again, yeah, better maybe in in since pre you know better than in previous editions. I mean, the other option that I was kind of thinking of, and and I'm kind of playing around in Battle Scrap trying to see if it'll 
how much it'll work, but like you could potentially take some like hellhounds instead. Yeah. yeah. Hellhounds would probably be a better choice. But the problem is, is that you don't really have enough points uh, to take like. So you have to take you could. Well, you have to you have to three three. So you could take three of the Bane Wolves, which has the uh, the chemo, the chem cannon. And that puts you three points over uh, because they're 88 points a piece. So you could probably find three points somewhere else. Well, is that without is that with taking we're taking the commanders the those extra two commanders out yes yeah okay yeah that's that's with taking those those extra ones out uh adding three of those gets you to 2003 points so you could probably find three points somewhere else the other option would be if you wanted to take like the actual like devil dog or hellhound you know so you know because one has the melted cannon and one has like the flame cannon those are 101 points so you could potentially go back down and like take the missile launchers out of that one squad, you know, and, and go back and, and reconfigure some points that way. Uh, the other thing I did with the long fangs as well, because I do remember that I took that I changed this for the points. The long fang pack leaders had one had a bolt gun, bolt pistol, power axe, bolt gun, bolt pistol, power fist, uh, flamer, chain sword. If anybody's getting through your six units of infantry and getting and getting through everything else and getting into melee with the long fangs you've lost so i don't know that the i mean granted it's five and nine and six points but taking those off allows you some extra points to be able to do a few other things but i I don't know that i would be worried about having like a single power weapon on a unit of long fangs because they should never be in melee and if they are in melee they've gotten through everything else and you've probably lost already right because, you know, I'm looking, I'm like, you know, the space, like the Wolfen, like you said, five, five Wolfen models is not going to do a whole lot, especially, I don't know if they've got a good delivery system for the Wolfen. I mean, they can outflank. I mean, you, you've got that, but I'm just wondering if that, if it's even worth keeping them around. I mean, the points you could free up would, I mean, would be pretty handy, but yeah. Well, so I, I took the missile launchers off that long fang squad and yeah. just dropped them back down to bolters. And then added in three uh, three flamer hellhounds at 101 points apiece, and you still have about uh, that's 1962. So you still have about 38 points there. Uh, so we're basically kind of where we're at before. I said I don't know. Is that enough to add another wolf into that squad? Yeah, so it still doesn't give you enough points to add another wolf into that squad with uh, to and, and give him a power weapon. The other thing too is I'm not 100 percent sure on the rune priest that the jump pack's necessary. That's 24 points. I mean, it allows him to deep strike, but... Which, yeah, and he he mentioned that, that he wanted to be able to deep strike that in. Yeah, I just... I don't know. That's that's another area where if you're looking to save points somewhere to add in other things, that that could be, a, you know, that could be a place. Because I don't know... It, it's a nice to have, but I don't know that it's necessary on the Rune Priest. Now, like, I have no issue with his uh, super heavy of choice. The Shadow Sword is a very good choice. Absolutely. And I do like the the... Katachin tactic for that to be able to re-roll because I think that's 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 the I think that's the best one for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like having the Wolfen in the list because I do like having that melee that melee aspect, and they can move a lot. They can advance and charge. Like they're a good melee unit. I just don't know. I, I almost I almost wonder if it would instead of using a uh, instead of using the uh, uh, 
shoot, I always forget what the names of these are. Uh, instead of using the spearhead detachment and taking three heavy choice, mm-hmm. maybe take a vanguard and do three units of wolfen. Uh, they're going to be re- way more expensive. I mean, though. it's going to be way more expensive, but you're looking at they. He's spending almost 400 points on long fangs. Uh huh. I mean, you take that instead, and you add in because yeah, one unit of wolfen. That way, he has it kitted out. One unit of wolfen is 225. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is like, and that's actually a pretty decent setup for wolfen. The one thing that struck me as weird is that he's got uh, six long fangs in one squad and five in all the others. Yeah, I think it was just because he could get the extra an extra heavy bolter, but he don't have the points. Yeah. But I think the points, you know, if the points would make the difference in taking another thing, pulling that one body would make it would be worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So so pulling the pulling the long fangs and adding in two more stock like base units of Wolfen without any upgrades gets him to 1892. So that's about 100 points to play with as far as upgrades on those units. Okay, so here's here's an option that I have, and this comes out to 1996. So I drop the long fangs, change this to a uh, Vanguard. You have two units of Wolfen that are exactly the way he has them kitted out. So two Frost Axe, uh, two Thunderhammer Storm, Sh- Storm Shield. And then uh, the third unit has two Frost Axe and drop the Thunderhammer Storm Shield. So that one's just uh, Frost Claws and Frost Axe. And that get, comes out to 1,996 points. And that's three units of Wolfens that are able to come in, you know, drop in, assault, charge, kind of get your melee stuff done. I don't know that you necessarily need the long fangs, although it's nice to have the last cannons. Yeah. Uh, I think you have probably plenty of shooting going on in this already. So you do, you do something like that. And then if you really wanted to, heck, you could go back. Like I, have, I think I have the Rough Riders taken out. And replace with Hellhounds still. If you drop the Rough Riders back in, that saves you like another 50-some points. So you could then add more to the Wolfen. Okay, so what I had was I took... So I I took the extra Long Fang off the Heavy Bolter Squad out. And I didn't equip the Long Fang Pack Leaders with any close combat weapons because why? Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean... If somebody gets close enough to get into combat where having a power axe or power fist matters, something's gone horribly wrong. Um, that got my heavy support down to from 394 to 350. Uh, and then, of course, you know, drop the two illegal platoon commanders and two illegal weapon squads, you know, heavy weapon squads. With everything else as is, I was able to swap out the Rough Riders for three Hellhounds. Okay. I mean, and that would be that would be the easiest change to make. Yeah, the you could I could see the uh, the spearhead detachment being a uh, being changed for a vanguard. The problem is a stock Wolfen unit is 155 points, and that's with like all frost claws. Yep. Which, if you dropped the heavy support entirely, yeah. If you drop the heavy support out of it entirely, you just have to add in two more units of Wolfen. Yeah. If you keep the Rough Riders. If you keep the Rough Riders instead of the Hellhounds, you could keep you could put put in three units of Wolfen kitted the way he has with uh, Thunderhammer, Storm Shield, uh, Frost Axe, Frost Axe, and then you know five. You could put in three units like that and still have points. The pack leader looks to. Does the pack leader always have Frost uh, Claws? You can, you can go in and upgrade them. I think. The fr- Wolfen Pack Leader is, a fr- is armed with Frost Claws. Technically, the Wolfen pa- Pack Leader is different from Wolfen. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, he, so, I don't so he always fights... Okay, so he always fights with Frost Claws. 
But yeah, so okay, so I took out I kept in the the Rough Riders. Took out the extra units that we didn't, you know, that we couldn't have. The extra heavy weapon squad, the extra company commanders. I added three units of Wolfen and took out all the heavy support. And that gets me to 1948. So we have 52 points that we could potentially still use on stuff. Because Okay, so what I've got is I did the, like, three company commanders, th- you know, the infantry squads. I took the bolt pistols off the platoon commanders so that they just to shed mm-hmm. a few points. Because that's three points that a bolt pistol is not, again, not going to make that much of a difference. Three hellhounds, three of the mortar squads, and then the rune priest, three wolfen squads, where the only difference I made is I dropped them down to one great frost axe instead of two. And that's got me at 1976 points. So you have points for, I mean, you don't have a lot of points, but uh, try to think of what you could throw in for an extra... Yeah, you could throw in like another another more, uh, mortar team in one of the other one of the other units. I mean, if you've got actually, well, you couldn't throw in a mortar. Yeah, you could throw mortars into the infantry oh, yeah. squads. You'd have because the yeah. the thing is, you have thirty four points, but you can't legally take another heavy weapon squad. So- well, no, no, no. I mean, you could go in and add another another base to each of the squads. Okay, yeah, yeah, you. That's could. what I mean. So like, so that it's four man units instead of three man units. Yeah. And that would basically get you right up to... 1999 with my list. 1999. So there's a couple so, of different ways yeah. you can go about this. But yeah, if you keep the... So it, it's like we're kind of leaning into the long fang... Or into the... We're kind of leaning into the wolf in a bit more. Since they do kind of... Since with the stratagem support, they can basically fulfill the same role as the uh, as the Rough Riders. But I think they're going to be better at it than the Rough Riders. Yeah, they'll be a lot better at it than the Rough yeah. Riders. Yeah. And then it really comes down to because you've got the shadow sword. I mean, that's that's the one thing is the the long fangs do give you like last cannon heavy bolter, and you do kind of need that against knights. Although the shadow sword will help a bit. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely trading out trading out a few things, uh, you know. And like I said, I don't know that either of those options that we've came up with are significantly better. But uh, I don't know. I, I think they're both. I think they're both decent options. I, I think that, and like I said, I, I think I would probably lean more into the Wolfen, but I'm also a corn player, so I like melee. <laughs> so take that, take that for what it is. Okay, so no, I can't do an extra body into each one. I've got, I've got 24 points left, not 34. Ah, so okay, so you had an extra body to two of them. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, th- uh, three Hellhounds will definitely, three Hellhounds and three units of Wolfen will do better. Uh, the other thing I noticed about the other. About the uh, shadow sword, and this would actually could actually help make up for the loss of the long fangs. If we can free up sixty eight points, which actually means I need to uh, uh, be able to free up another like like forty four points. Which if we dropped like if I dropped the frost axes from the wolf and and just had like two thunder hammers and uh, then frost claws for everything else. That would allow you to put the last cannon heavy bolter sponsons onto the shadow sword. Yeah, because right now he's just got the standard heavy, the, the front mounted heavy bolter, and then like a pintle mounted heavy stubber. One of the other options too that I'm looking at, like we dropped in the hellhounds, and we're kind of assuming that you're probably going to run the flame template hellhounds. Yeah, but if you run the devil dog, it's a that has a melt cannon on it. Yeah. Now there are so, they more or less expensive? They're the same, exact same. They're 101 points. Okay, so you could do so, that depending on what you want. Like if you're going up against knights, that would be the one to use. 
Yeah. So you've got a couple options there as yeah. far as still being able to take out knights and do do big shooting. So yeah, if you drop the th- the great axe, great frost axes from the wolfen entirely, but you still have two thunder hammers in each squad. So you've got two thunder hammers and three with frost claws. Then the shadow sword can get the uh, las cannon twin heavy bolter sponsons, and that thing will then be putting out as much firepower as the long fangs, pretty much. Yes. So heck, I would probably try to find a way to do that, regardless. <laughs> yeah, and that that puts you at nineteen ninety five. So I think that gets us kind of in the same same basic performance, but getting better usage out of those things. And this doesn't change the rune priest at all, and it leaves most it it leaves the the core of the brigade alone entirely. The relics and everything yep. are fine. Um, I would go ahead and since you've got a brigade. I would spend the one command point from the uh, from the Vanguard detachment if you want the Wolfenstone on getting the relic. Yeah, for, yeah, because you have to yeah. spend a command point to get that. But otherwise, yeah, the, shedding the the illegal points freed up enough to give you some options on which way you want to go. But yeah, there, I, I think that might give you the same basic basic thing, but a little bit more a little bit more punch where you need it with like the outflanking and such. And if you have a list you'd like us to review, even if it's a guard list, which we don't play guard and we're not good at, but we'll try anyway, uh, or you have uh, a letter, you know, a concern or a rules question or just something you want our opinion on, uh, there's three good ways to do that. Uh, first is to email us. Our email addresses are our first name at preferred enemies. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferred enemies dot com. Uh, second way is on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, you can like us there, follow us. We post news, things we're working on, events we're going to. Um, and, uh, you can like us there, send us messages. Uh, third way is on Twitter. Uh, we have a Twitter account at, we are at preferred enemy singular on Twitter. And we post, uh, kind of a mirror of what we've got going on on Facebook, but we also put out the same call for listener questions. In fact, we recently put out a call on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, one of our show ideas coming up is we've been asking about like units that you would love to see on the tabletop more, but you just don't because they're not necessarily because they're bad units, but just because they're either better choices or they're not as efficient as they could be or they're too monopurpose. And we've gotten some really good feedback, and I'm looking forward to kind of working that into a number of shows possibly because there's a lot of the, a lot of them that are being listed. We could do one just on units in the Marine Codex that have been put up there because like Terminator Centurions, Drop Pods, many of the tanks have all popped up. So we, we've got some some great, great things coming down the pipe. But anyway, we take all our listener mail from all those three sources and we collate it together and we put together our list of uh, mess- or list of uh, listener mail that we read on the show. And if you sent in an old list review, um, I've been trying to dig through the pile and figure out which ones we have done, which ones we haven't. So uh, we haven't necessarily missed you. We just haven't found you in the in the list yet to get to. So I apologize. Um, uh, list reviews are the we only get to do like one an episode in most cases because that they they take a while to dig into. Uh, but uh, also we have a Patreon if uh, you want to help support the show and that does things like help pay for travel costs to events or to buy new equipment for our, like the recording setup or you know like make sure that we've got a good microphone for Kevin or that he's got something he can take with him when he goes to LVO. Uh, 
you can help support the show that way. Uh, it's basically an online tip jar. We don't lock any content behind that paywall. All our shows are still going to be free, but if you just want to help us out, um, even a dollar a month, as little as a dollar a month, enough people put in a dollar, it helps out. And in fact, we have two new patrons. I'd like to welcome Michael Blumster and Tim Siddons to the, to our Patreon family. Thank you for supporting the show, guys. Um, we will, uh, probably be doing, uh, we actually, and our, our patrons who ordered dice, like as Dustin reported, they are getting their dice. In fact, we know uh, one of them made it all the way to Luxembourg. Uh, ho- however, the person who received it said it must have lost all its mojo during the flight because they rolled like crap when he got them. And again, we didn't produce oh, my set. The- yeah, he didn't. Pro- we didn't produce the dice. That's on Chessex. We're sorry if uh, they aren't rolling up the snuff. But... Uh, We've seen them roll well, so it can happen. But uh, if you want to support us, that is at prefer at patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, we're going to take a quick break for sponsor identification. And when we get back, we're going to dig into our main topic, which is city fight and urban conquest. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, And when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding G-board portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and so it's time to dig into the main topic, which is Urban Conquest and by proxy Cities of Death. Uh, Cities of Death as a thing has had a long history in in 40K. In fact, I have the original City Fight book Oh my, book I forgot here. about that book. Yeah. Uh, even before there were Cities of Death, there was City Fight uh, back in the days of like 3rd edition. Uh, we had Cities of Death in 4th edition, and then we had it again in, I think in 6th and 7th, it was like reprinted in White Dwarf, I want to say. Because I remember they had the Maelstrom cards for that, that you could get over like two different uh, yeah two different mm-hmm. uh, yeah. weeks. I think that was 6th edition. Yeah. 
And then uh, eighth edition has brought it back with uh, chapter approved 2018. Uh, and uh, now, Urban Conquest ha- includes those rules in it, but it's also an entire campaign system in a box, which I think is a cool thing to have because there's a lot of people that would, I imagine, they want to do narrative campaigns. They want to have these kind of like ongoing story campaigns where they're like, I don't know where to start. How do I, like, how do we build this? How do I keep track of how many points? How many points do I give away for stuff? How can I make this kind of cool and easy to follow? Uh, they've done something kind of like this in the past with planetary empires but planetary empires which i mean it's cool it's a very neat hex-based system but it was also a bit more difficult because when you got planetary empires you got a bunch of plastic sprues of hexes that you had to paint yourself and then you got a bunch of plastic flags which you had to paint yourself to put you know to plug into those little hexes to show who is controlling what hexes and it's visually very cool, but the fact that you had to do all this prep work ahead of time to even make the campaign set playable, I think, I mean, I still haven't finished, I haven't painted my Planetary Empire set yet, just because it's like, I have other things, like, I'd rather be painting models and playing and having to take the extra time, which, again, it wouldn't be difficult, the Planetary Empire's hexes paint up pretty quickly, but there it's like still to set up a map based campaign that's just an extra step that a lot of people especially if they're new to wanting to do campaign play don't necessarily want to do and so games workshop has addressed this with urban conquest by basically taking that prep work out of it and giving you the tools like the physical tools you need to set up a campaign with a a nice neat display system for doing map based campaigns and tracking everybody's campaign victory points and everything that's going on so that at any given moment you can take a glance at basically the control sheet they have and see how everybody's doing at any given given point and also giving you a very solid framework in the rule set for setting up that campaign and running it without having to do a lot of prep work. And you can make it as thematic or random as you want. So the the core piece here of Urban Conquest, and you guys can't see this, but it's very big. It's this big plastic binder sheet, effectively. I remember when they first... They first announced it was like going to be like an A2 or A1 sheet. We're like, I don't know what British measurements is, but uh, so yeah, Dennis is getting out a tape measure to tell us exactly how big it is. So it's 27 inches wide by 16 and a half tall. It's got holes punched at the top for either hanging on a wall, like you could just put a couple of push pins in and hang it up, or you could fold it, theoretically fold it up and put it in a binder, although I don't think there's a binder big enough to make it fit. But yeah, it's it's pre it's set up ready to be hung on a wall, whether it's in a game store or in like the basement you game in or what have you. And one half of the sheet is basically a city map, and it has twenty five little folders on it. I'm gonna say it doesn't look like a city map right now. Well, it it has a very faint uh, like okay. map, like it's a light colored side with very like light gray. I see it now when you hold it up to the light. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of hard to see it oblique because, you know, the the reflection, it's not ter- that part's not terribly high contrast. And that's where you build your city. So they give you a set, and I think it's, I don't remember exactly how many. A lot. There. <laughs> but you, okay, so you basically have 
a deck of location cards. And this location card deck can include hab blocks, uh, Basilicanum districts, uh, Administratum districts, Mechan- uh, Secundus quarters, uh, Ministorum Secundus quarters, uh, the Sanctum Celestinia or Celestinus, Manufacturum zones, Sector Mechanicus zones, Mechanicus warehouse zones, and then a set of six special locations as well. And so you can take this deck and you could just, if you wanted to, you could just shuffle this or you could pick out the locations because there's 20, there's more than 25 in the deck. I think there's like 40 or 40 to 50 in the deck, uh, but there's only, uh, 25 spots on the city map. And so, like, one way you can do it is you can just shuffle these up and then just randomly dole these out and build your city that way. Or you could build, like, if you wanted to, like, I'm going to do a random Mechanicus city. I'm just going to take the Manufactorum zones. Let's see. If we just take, we'll take the Manufactorums. And then we'll include, oh, the Promethean Reactor Complex, the Aegis City Sky Shield Generator, and let's say a shuttle port for our special locations. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. We had seven hab blocks for our, our servitors, or not our servitors, but our like Skatari and such to actually live in. And then we, we've built a, and then we, shuffle those in and build those out into our city or we could do the same thing with the uh like a a shrine city or just a standard imperial city and and actually deal out a city that way or you can like go through and like okay i want to put the the imperial palace in the center and then i'm going to kind of build out around that you could design a city too but again the idea is this should be very easy for somebody who's like maybe relatively like they've played a few games of 40k and they they like the novels and they want to really get into the story aspect and get into the narrative play and so GW's actually made it really simple to set up a, a different you know a campaign and then in addition to the city map and each of these city spaces has a couple sticker spots on them a couple circles and a couple of numbers and those numbers will come into play as the campaign plays out and then there's spaces for each player to put an ID card where they write their name. They can affix a sticker that shows which color faction they represent. So we're not dealing with any hand-painted flags here. It's just stickers. They're vinyl stickers, so they'll peel on and theoretically peel on and peel off. And that so everyone knows, okay, this is this is Dennis's army. He's playing Eldar. He's going to be using the orange color uh and uh, this is his spot on the board, or his. This is his spot on the sheet. And Richard is orcs and green, and you know stuff like that. So everyone can kind of see who's playing what. Then at the top, there's also a place for holding, placing. What is the strategic goal of the campaign? How are you going to earn extra campaign points to pull ahead of your friends? And there's three different deployment styles for the city map that they describe in the book. And there's a goal for each one. Uh, one of them is really only for two players. The other two are for two to four players. So this, this supports four players out of the box. And they do say if you have more than four players, you could look at doing a team based campaign. And they basically say like have each team count as a player. Pretty simple. So there will be a goal that's there for the whole campaign. And then for every round of the campaign, which for the, for the length of round, they suggest a week per round. So get in your games of the week. And then at the end of the week, we kind of tabulate results and see what happens. Each week, 
there's a random event deck that can come up and there's a spot on the sheet for where you put that random event. And fortunately, you can identify all of them by the card backs. So the card backs match the spots they have on the on the folder. So it should be pretty easy for, you know, to know where everything needs to go. And the random ev- event could be anything from a comms blackout. Uh, the command reroll stratagem uh, costs two points instead of one. Or, um, while this random event is in play, intel from high command. While this event's in play, each player starts the battle with three additional command points, but that can only be spent on cities of death stratagems. Just, you know, stuff like that. Or uh, maybe... Uh, while this random event's in play, both players roll a d6 at the start of each battle before either side deploys, and if the result is less than 7, you play with the Urban Battle Zone Pollution Rules, which are also printed in Chapter Approved. So, like, a lot of the rules for the actual individual games are straight out of Chapter Approved, but they're also reprinted in Urban Conquest. So, if you're coming into the game brand new, you can, again, you can just buy this or have somebody buy this box and have all the rules in one place there as well. Or if you're doing a campaign, one person gets the box as long as everyone else is um, chapter approved. Yeah, good. Yeah, and that's one of the things about this. This is not a product that everybody in a group needs to buy. We, you do not need to buy for like, let's say the four of us were going to play in a campaign. Four of us do not need to buy Urban Conquest. One person needs to buy Urban Conquest because you only need one map. You only need one set of stickers. There's some scattered terrain in here that's added, but you really, I mean, unless you really want multiple sets of that, you really only, yeah, you don't need multiple sets of it. So it's, it's good to have, you know, one copy, but that's all you're going to need. Everything else, like I said, chapter approved will be all you really need. And then in addition, next to each player, there's uh, some strategic resource spots on the board. And so, uh, you can actually like you buy those as you're as you're going through the game. Uh, so like so for setting up the campaign, you decide how long you're going to play. They're like, eh, eight weeks is a good length, but you could play more or less. Uh, you pick an army faction and you have to throughout all the campaign. Every unit in your army has to share the same faction keyword. So if you play, say I'm going to pick. Uh, ultramarines as my faction. That means for the whole campaign, you are, it's not just for detachments. Your whole army would have to be ultramarines. If you're playing Necrons, uh, you have to be all Necrons or, you know, all like Sautech Dynasty or whatever you pick. Um, you could pick like all, all like Asuriani if you wanted to do mixed craft worlds or if you wanted to do mixed, uh, like you could, I mean, this doesn't necessarily fall under match play rules. So you could just pick Imperium if you wanted a mixed Imperium force, but it, that just depends on what kind of limitations you want on the campaign. And then you generate the cityscape, which we described. You know, you you dot you deal them out and you slide them into the little folders here. And then once you've got that, then you figure out, then you set up the campaign by determining how you're going to deploy. If you're doing two players, they recommend kind of an attacker defense situation. The defender takes the nine squares in the middle of the city and the attacker takes the four corners around it. So the attacker ends up with like 12 squares to the defender's nine. And then the defender picks a location to be their power base and they get a sticker for marking that location. And that location kind of becomes a special location for the purpose of the game. And so whoever is holding that location gets if the defender's holding it they get a a bonus campaign point if they if the invader captures it they get three extra bo- points so it's all about you know stealing that command spot uh otherwise there's a 
four player version where everybody starts in the corners and kind of fights their way through. And then there's a third one, which I think works better if you have three, three or four players, or even it would work fine with two as well. But this one is you just like for every, like everybody goes through and just like one at a time picks a location that can't be adjacent to another location they've picked. And so they end up kind of scattered throughout the city and then it like it tells you like if you have three players or four players or two players you pick these many this many spaces each and then your goal there is just to try to control the largest contiguous block of the city so they give you a few different ways to set up which then that determines what your goal for bonus points in the campaign is and then the campaign just plays out you play games you start off like there's two phases there's the action phase which is you play games and you play games using the cities of death Rule. And then they have a whole like mission matrix of like, Hey, you pick this strategy and your opponent picks this strategy. And then we figure out like, okay, this is the kind of mission you're going to play. And it's always going to be a cities of death mission, which is going to use the cities of death rules. We've talked about these before where it, the main thing is it's got the improved cover system, which we all really like. And, uh, you know, makes ruins actually a little bit more useful than just like line of sight blocking. Unless you're playing on one of the six special locations in that deck, and each one of those has their very own mission with their own like deployment style and special rules. So, for example, like one of the ones they have is Sniper's Alley, which is basically specifies all the ruins have to be on the long edges of the table, and there has to be a big open throughway in the middle that you can put a little bit of scatter terrain in, and then you get access like. Uh, anybody who is uh, shooting from above gets an X can reroll ones to hit because they're, you know, like they're using these, you know, the sniper positions to fire down on the other side as they're moving their way across the map. And then it tells them like, what, here's the mission, like here's the mission you actually play. It's just, here's the deployment that you use for doing it in the special rules. And then based on how you do each round, you earn glory points. So did you win a battle? You win th- you get 3 glory points. Uh did you kill the enemy warlord? You get a point. Uh did you lose a battle? You still get a point. But if if you conceded, you get no points. So they really want to encourage you to play these out to the end. And then those points, th- this is where it gets a it got a little confusing in the first read through. So you've got three kind of points you're dealing with. You've got your glory points, your strategy points, and then your campaign points. Campaign points are what are actually going to win you the game. Glory points just determine who has the initiative going into the second phase of each round, which is the strategy phase. And that's where you actually start scoring your campaign points. So first off, I mentioned there were two numbers on each card. The top number is what they call the resource value. That's how much, that's how important a location is as far as like, what is it worth to you tactically? And uh, that one is, uh, it's usually about a, it's it's usually like one or some, some are worth zero. Yeah, some are worth one, some are worth zero. There's a few that are worth two. And then some of the special locations, like the Imperial Palace is worth four. The Saints Basilicanum is worth three. So some of them are, are worth a lot of points if they yeah, come up. The, the special ones are the ones that are the threes and fours. But yeah. I think the highest I saw in there was twos on the... Yeah, just general tires. Right. And that's how many campaign points you earn is for controlling those blocks. And then there's a second number on here called the strategic value. And that's how many 
you add those up and that's how many strategy points you have. The strategy points you spend to use, they have strategy cards that provide a number of abilities. Some of them are very handy. And one of them you have to use if you want to attack the special tiles. Right. So, for example, Inspired Leadership. During the action phase of the next campaign round, so during the games played for the next round, the Warlord of the player with this card has one additional Warlord trait chosen from the Cities of Death Warlord traits, which they've got a set of three there. This card, this card normally costs three strategy points, but it has three strategy points, but it costs zero if you control the Saints Basilicanum. So if you control a particular location, particular special location, you get that one for free. Let's see. Strategic Insights. For three strategy points, you immediately gain D3 campaign points. This is free if you control the Fortified Palace. Strategic Breakthrough. For five strategy points, the player who purchases this card immediately gains D6 campaign points. And the thing is, you place all the strategy resources out for all the players to see, and that includes any that are currently already being used, you know, that were in the map, and then in initiative order, so based on how you did in your game performance, you pick a card. You can either pass or purchase a card. Once you've purchased it, nobody else can buy that one this turn. What if there are some of those that there are multiple of them? If there card? are multiples, then yeah, you could both okay. have one. But for the most part, like like there's two of the Assault Stronghold ones, which allow you to go after these special, special locations. But yeah, once all players have either purchased a card or passed, they repeat, they keep doing it until... Either everybody has purchased three cards or everybody has passed. So you can only buy up to three, but you don't want to necessarily pass to see what everybody else is going to take. Because if everybody passes, then nobody can buy any more. Strategy points that are unspent do carry over. Oh. So that's how the... Because a lot of these locations are only worth like one or sometimes even zero strategy points. So that may let you bank up to get like, hey, I'm going to spend five to get the D6 campaign points. Maybe that'll pull me ahead. Or control the little things for two two rounds, and that way you have enough to attack a stronghold. There you go, yeah. And then finally, you seize territory. And to seize territory, you basically, at the end of every round, somebody, starting again with the player who has initiative, you look at your where you control on the board. You can gain control of one territory that is adjacent, including diagonal, of a territory you already have. Um, if... If somebody else controls that territory, you can only take it if you beat them in that that previous round. So if we're playing, and let's say I play Richard and Dennis, and Richard beats me, but I beat Dennis, if the only territory I have is next to Richard, I can't take any of it because I can't take Richard's territory because I didn't beat him, but I could take Dennis's. But Richard could take any of mine if he's, ne- you know, anything that's next to him that's that's mine. And they even have a contingency of if you get knocked off the board, if somebody take if takes your last ter- territory, you're not out of the campaign. You just lose three campaign points, and then ha- and after everybody else has seized their territory, you pick either a spot on the board that is not a special location and is currently unclaimed. Or if everything is claimed, you can claim any one territory as long as it's not a special location. So you can always claw your way back into the game. Now, you're going to be hurting on getting more campaign points. You're going to be hurting on strategy points. But it's a chance to like, hey, if I can win my games in the next next phase, maybe I'll be able to take some object, you know, take some territories from people, which is also why there's a strategic card for taking two territories instead of one in the seized territory phase. So 
Um, there, there's a lot of things you can do. There's also a raise to the ground strategy, which lets you take anything that's not a special location and raise it. And a raised location, uh, you put a raised location sticker on it. Nobody can control that location for the remainder of the campaign. It's not worth anything. But you can never raise special locations. They're, they're special in that regard. And then, the, yeah, and so that's that's basically the campaign system. You go through, you you play your games, you accrue your points based on how much of the map you control and what you control, and then you kind of, you, you jockey for position on, on having particular strategic benefits, and then you do it again. You draw another random event and play the next week, and you keep going up in points like that. And I guess what I like about this, because I see this being like a small gaming group or a store type thing, mm-hmm. where... You play whoever, whenever you are available to, as long as you get in one game. Because I think it said you can play as many games as you want. It's just try to get had, one, right? Yeah. And whoever had the best, like overall points, yeah, in all the games gets to. It just gets to go first, though. Right. That's the great thing. Is like it doesn't matter how many games you play; it's not necessarily going to get you more campaign points. Yeah, and I th- I like that. It 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 allows the people who don't have nearly as much time to play a little bit of balance against those who do. And so you can kind of play on your own time, except for that one time you have to schedule everybody together for the end of round, I guess, bookkeeping phase of the game. Right. Uh, Which we even talked about, hey, you could probably even do this online. Oh, yeah. You could keep a, a, a keep a photo up of the map and the chart. Uh, and, yeah, somebody could basically say, okay, I'm going to take these areas of the map and, d- yeah, just track it that way. Um, they also talk about taking it further. Create your own special locations. You know, like you could make your own card and slot it in. They give you some general ideas what to, you know, what to do with it. Um, some Streets of Death variants. Abandoned and Uncharted. When you generate the map, place the cards face down instead of face up, and you don't <laughs> see them until you move into them. So you don't, yeah. you don't know, like, even your special case is like, you don't know where the Imperial Palace is yet. You got to find your way there. If it's there. If it's there, yeah. And then once it's found, it stays. Yeah. They kind of do a fog of war thing. Uh, instead of a, a race to victory, set a command point or a campaign point total, and you're trying to get to that total rather than play for X weeks. Uh, or a historical cityscape, that's the one where instead of doing a random one, you create one on the fly. They talk about integrating kill team into it. And how much, like, like if you wanted to do kill team games instead of standard games, how the, how many glory points they'd be worth. They even talk about doing a planetary onslaught campaign where you use planet strike and stronghold assault to build up to the city fight portion of the turn of the game. Hmm. So, I mean, they, I mean, that's some, you're talking like a year long campaign or something at that point. But they talk about like, you do you do phases of the game where like you do a phase of planet strike, a phase of stronghold assault, and then a phase of urban conquest, and then the the grand winner is crowned the victor of the campaign, either as a planet killer who has crushed all before them, or the custodian supreme who successfully defended their world from invasion. Yeah. So so they they really actually put some thought on on how to integrate this in with the other products that they've built. And made it, I, I think, very accessible for a campaign system. I'm, I'm actually looking to, I want to, I want to make a campaign of this because it also, it allows as casual or intense a play schedule as you want to, as you want to support. I could even see like using this as maybe using it as a basis for, I mean, you wouldn't use 
like the mechanics for actually playing 40k, but again, like a basis for running Wrath and Glory. Oh, absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. if you, yeah, if, no, if you know, if you wanted to build out a city map and kind of take a, a team through the city doing particular missions. Right. And you could kind of like, you know, mock up the, the portion of, there are two armies fighting. You're stuck between them or you're serving one of them as like scouts or an advanced unit. Right. And then just kind of like playing out based on how your adventure did. Oh, this side won. So they're going to take some terrain. And then, okay, you're going to strike into the fort, the enemy forces next week and do this mission. Yeah. yeah. You, you could totally use this as a basis for a role playing campaign as well. Then they also extend, they expanded cities of death a bit with, uh, some new, um, They've got all the stratagems they had in in uh, chapter approved. They've added the Cities of Death Tactical Objective deck back. I am sad that they didn't actually release the Cities of Death Tactical Objective deck, right? Because <laughs> this is not these are not compa- this is not the same ones that are in the standard Tactical Objective deck, and they are just different enough that if you have the old sixth edition one, they don't match. <laughs> They're close. There's a number of them that are close, but it's not a it's not a perfect match. You'd have to kind of fake your way through it but it's it's got a lot of the same things where and also uh in this gameplay style every uh like objective markers are placed inside buildings the buildings are the things you want to control you know they want you to like try to seize buildings from your opponents or who they have everyone's least favorite higher ground if you're in the two high one of the two highest buildings (laughs) on the board you get victory points yay <laughs> we we didn't like that one in sixth edition. I still don't like it here. Because not everybody has a one high building. Sometimes they have a lot of like roughly the same sized buildings. Yeah. And then uh they give you like the same narrative play missions that were in chapter approved, and then they added uh six uh mail or match play missions, which are basically variations on they the great thing about the match play missions is they did both eternal war and maelstrom of war missions and they basically tell you here's how the main objective works for each one which if it's maelstrom of war it's always get maelstrom objectives if it's eternal war they added uh like there's one that's just score objective markers at the end of the game some of them are and score them at the end of each turn and they didn't use the acceptable uh, casualties rule in any of these, but you could add that in. I, I'm sure yeah. you, you could slot that in. Some, most of them do alternating unit deployment. So there's a couple that do deploy entire army, and then the rest do deploy alternating. Um, they also did, even threw in some open play missions for Cities of Death, just if you just want to like get your collections together and just throw a quick ad hoc battle together. So they, cut, they support all three styles of, of play in here. And they even did a quick reference for Cities of Death that covers like the quick the quick version of the improved uh, cover rules and the a basic uh, campaign round strat summary of how Cities of Death like the the Streets of Death campaign works. So it'd be kind of nice if they included if there was a way to get this book separately, but right now there's not. But the box set for the entire campaign is a hundred bucks. So if you were a player group, if you each threw in twenty five. You could get a copy of the, like, if you had four people and three and 25, or if it was just you and a friend and split it, you know, 50 50, it, it's, it's, it is literally a campaign system in a box. I really, really like it. I want to, and like I said, I want to play this because I've wanted to play a map based campaign, but it's always the prep work of going into that that's been kind of the, the part that's kind of stopped me from wanting to do it because I'm like, I don't know where to start. I, 
I, I don't know like the proper, like I could, I've seen some examples using like planetary empire styles, but God, I don't want to do the planetary. I don't want to paint my planetary empire tiles before <laughs> I can paint or before I can play. And this just takes care of all of that. And it's really made to be accessible off the go. Um, I haven't tested how well the vinyl stickers. In fact, I will do that right now. So I'm going to, I will slot a location into the map just to kind of see how this works. So it's a pretty snug fit. So these shouldn't come loose if this like gets dropped or held upside down. So, so that's, that's good. So, so they give you four, four sticker sheets. Each one has 30 skull stickers, which one of those will be used to mark your player color. And then the rest will be used to mark which territories you control. And then there's four for power bases, which are used in the two-player version of the game. They give you a bunch of stickers because you can upgrade locations to give different benefits. And then they give you four a four point counters for zero plus, thirty plus, sixty plus, ninety plus. Because the vic the campaign point chart only goes up to thirty. So then, oh, what if I get to thirty-one? Then you swap out your zero sticker for a thirty sticker and put it down on the one. So it's 30 plus one, 40, you know, and then 69. So theoretically, this goes all the way up to 120. Although hopefully the campaign is over before somebody gets to 120 points. <laughs> but okay, so a little vinyl sticker. Yeah, it sticks. It sticks pretty well to the plastic. You know what it reminds me of? I don't know if anybody ever played like color forms when they were a kid. Oh my gosh, I haven't thought about color deep, forms in years. Is that a deep enough cut for you? <laughs> no, I mean, it was just. Man, but, that's ancient history. But that's basically what they are. Sweet. Warhammer 40K in color forms. Yes, two great tastes that probably don't taste all that great if you put them in your mouth. But, but yeah, it seems to work well enough. And so there's the little marker showing who controls it. Oh, and I'd say I, up I upgraded this one for a comms unit. So I put a little white little sticker on there. I I'm, I'm still stuck on thinking of what 40K um, color forms would actually be like. Let, let's not. I think I don't think anyone's made color forms for years. Let's not start now. Actually, the company's still in existence, and they've gotten in, in the last like five or six years. Started doing uh, a bunch of different licensed ones, including Beatles, Peanuts, Gumby, Tarzan, Doctor Doolittle, Star Trek, Batman, and Superman. So 40K? okay, wait, you said you said recently because Beatles, Peanuts, Doctor Doolittle. Well, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, their audience is a little bit older. I guess so. I mean, the Beatles stuff still sells pretty well is what i'm getting at okay. <laughs> but yeah like uh no so that the company still exists Wait, color forms paw patrol that that's new <sighs> <laughs> okay so so maybe after funko pops and and 40k monopoly 40k color forms are the next place to go and then we could have a um, 40k clue where you try and determine who killed the emperor uh, Horus killed the Emperor. Everyone knows that. It's the worst version of Clue ever. <laughs> Horus with the talent of Horus on the on vengeful the spirit. <laughs> it's always that way. <laughs> the game always ends the same way, and the sanguineous player always loses. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Okay, that was fun. That was fun. <laughs> but yeah, I I think that the biggest challenge people are going to have, honestly, with playing the, this this campaign because it is it is specifically city fight. Although there's nothing saying that 
you would technically have to use the city uh, a city fight style table to play missions. You could come up with any any kind of mission you wanted. Um, the biggest thing people are going to have is the terrain is having enough city terrain to really pull this off. Um, and I do really like the new sector Imperialis terrain that they've got and the Mechanicus terrain. And I'm glad they're compatible in the same sizes and they've actually got uh, a building now called the Manufactorum, which is supposed to kind of bridge the two look wise, but that's going to be the, the other big piece that somebody's going to have to, to dish out for. And the newer terrain kits are not cheap. Like one well, building costs like fifty day, to seventy five bucks. The old Imperial sector stuff wasn't cheap it, either. It wasn't cheap. It was about like thirty five bucks a building for a. a I fair think it was more than that. Uh, well, the individual kits were like thirty five, maybe forty. But then you'd buy, you'd usually buy like the Imperial sector, which would be like four built, four or five buildings for a hundred or something like that. I thought it was close to two hundred, but there was the Imperial city one, which was the really big one that that we put yeah. together once. Okay, that one was like a hundred. That was the good one. Yeah, that was the really good one. They do have an Imperial sector now that's like a hundred and hundred or a hundred and ten, and it's like three buildings worth of the new stuff. Uh, but you look in, that would be the one thing that would be kind of off-putting is you look at the, the tables that they have. Cause again, GW can have as much of the GW terrain as they want. And those tables are stocked with terrain. <laughs> with, <laughs> like there's many, many kits that went into building some of this stuff. I have a bunch of the cardboard walls from second edition boxes. <laughs> I don't think that's going to cut it. Or like the, the Promethean reactor complex is a oh, lot that's of mechanics. beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's a lot of mechanicus terrain. Oh, oh right? yeah. But it's still beautiful. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, they even have a, like the sniper's alley one encourages you to build high. Um, directionally, that is. Directionally, that is. Uh, they have, <laughs> well, they, okay, so here's one. Building, building terrain's a lot more fun if you're high. <laughs> yeah. We preferred enemies do not, <laughs> do not encourage you to partake of any, any behavior that may be illegal in your location. However, if you live in Oregon, Colorado, California, <laughs> you know, uh, do whatever, you know? Um, they have, you do you. You do you. Just don't get in trouble. It's not our fault. Uh, They've got one that uses actually a void shield generator. So that's like a seventy-five or hundred dollar kit just yeah. by itself. But again, that's something you could kit bash something, I suppose. Uh they've got a shuttle port that they, they recommend you have at least one landing pad. This one has two. So I mean, there the terrain's gonna be the, the trickiest point, and unfortunately it's like for the the gothic look. There's not a lot of companies that are doing that terrain. Uh, a lot of, a lot of like your MDF producing companies are doing like sci-fi, doing, more doing like infinity style, like yeah. high tech sci-fi. I mean, the only thing I could think of is if you are also into kill team and you, that's your start. Yeah. The kill team boxes come with terrain unless you get mm-hmm. the death world ones. I, <laughs> well, the, but the main death, the main kill team, box. right? The main kill team box, definitely. But I was more thinking of you, know, you played Dark Eldar or Death Watch, and you kind of got the. I know Raging Heroes is getting into the terrain game. Yeah, I have not looked at that now, too I, closely. Were they doing like the printed cardboard, like I, I so like a like a like a laminated cardboard style something terrain. like that? I think. Yeah, uh, but yeah. But, you know, that is something that could work. And honestly, Kill Team, like, if you bought this and the Kill Team box, because they do give suggestions for uh, doing Kill Team instead of doing uh, 
you know, instead of doing a cities of death game, maybe you use this to do a kill team campaign. And that's, that's your, that's your terrain for doing this. Um, that would be totally fine too. So, uh, yeah, maybe start small and then build into your collection as you go. We're, we're lucky that we've, we've built a lot of city terrain for, for tournaments and such. So we've also been doing this and buying things for a few, for a few few years years now. I mean, we're what, this is year eight of the podcast. And we started before we started podcasting. Yeah. So, the, the, that's why, like, if you've got a couple of people or three or four people that can, like, pool their collection of terrain and, and make a nice tight city board, that's probably going to be, you know, get you the best game out of it for, for the way the game's meant. Cause you need, you're going to need at least six buildings because that's your six objective markers. So, um, you're figure, I'm, you're figuring, uh, if you go with like their sector, their imperial sector box that you can order on their website, although it's a little bit, you have to kind of dig for it a bit, but uh, that's about $200 for two of those. And that would get you six buildings right, right out of the gate. Um, if you have a kill team set in addition to that, that'll just give you that much more because that gives you about like a, a couple worth, a couple of good buildings worth of stuff. And then just kind of build up from there. That's going to be the most expensive part to playing a Seas of Death Train or De- Seas of Death campaign. But like I said, if you, if you're not stuck on using the Cities of Death missions necessarily, uh, because they are very much built around playing in a city where the buildings are your objectives, you could still use this to plot out just a campaign and just kind of fake it, you know? Yeah. So, or, and, or as Richard suggested, use it as a, uh, role playing, you know, a place to kick off a role playing game. Uh, they even mentioned like, hey, if you want to, if you, since kill team games are so short, maybe you could do a cities of death and a kill team game per, per round. It just depends on, on what you and your campaign group want to do. But yeah, uh, I think this is a, a good product. Um, and again, I really would like to see these cities of death, if nothing else, the cover rules make it a new standard 40k because it does make more terrain more useful. And even in, in this book, they also spe- like spell out more, like, here's ru- how ruins, craters, all the, all the different pieces of, of terrain that they've put out interact with things. So, uh, like, let's say you've, you've purchased a couple of the kill, t- kill team, uh, zones. Like, uh, let's say you've got the, the original box and then you've got the sector mechanicus and maybe the sector, what, uh, oh, I can't remember what the, uh, the one that had like the, the little hauler, like the cranes and the armored containers, but you could combine all of that to kind of make a cityscape and, and get at least, you know, enough terrain on the table to, to keep it looking interesting and full. So there's, there's ways to go about it and get this up. That's going to be your, your biggest challenge. Um, I'd recommend for this format you could do 2000 points i think we're going 1500 just because like we're going to do a campaign at 1500 points it'll keep the games a little faster shorter yeah shorter games also i think this this is a style that is not going to favor big things uh you know like knights will do i mean knights are fine in city fight but a lot of the things are going to like a lot of times you're going to be on the second floor of things and the knights are going to be kind of limited to shooting or spending points on, uh, you know, trying to hit, you know, use the stratagem to get those higher targets and, you know, get the, you know, use devastating reach. This is going to be a environment that's going to favor things like flamers where 
cover doesn't apply. This is going to be, you know, you're going to be fighting, uh, you know, people are going to be staying out a lot of line of sight or they're going to be, uh, having really good cover saves. So you're going to have to kind of stick and move. You're going to have to have, it's going to be more infantry based. Vehicles will have a harder time maneuvering. So uh, a smaller game isn't necessarily bad for this. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of, that's what we're going with, uh, for anybody else who, who is running an urban conquest campaign, we'd love to hear like how, how, how is your game set up and how are you, you know, how did you go about it? Um, yeah, so feel, feel free to write in. We'll, we'll read those on listener mail. And I think that pretty much covers our review because I mean, it's, it's a relatively simple box set. My, my one complaint my one real complaint out of this is that it comes with some plastic scatter terrain and a set of like six special objectives that they give you. Like you can spend stratagems to make one of these objectives, like a Medicaid facility or an ammo dump. And they give you uh, plastic objective markers to build for those. They don't give you instructions on how to build those plastic objective markers. <laughs> they give you pictures in the book of what they look like when they're done from one angle. <laughs> So none, they're not too difficult, so I'll, I should have no problem figuring out. But again, if somebody was a new new to this, they might kind of be scratching their heads and trying to figure out, okay, so what is this again? How do I build this? And I'll say my one complaint is the board because <laughs> it doesn't fit in the box, and so it has these unique wrinkles. Where they folded it. Yeah, where it was folded at just very inopportune places. I mean, Rob said it'll probably like it'll flatten out, flatten out over time. But right now, it's like, yeah, it looks it's, wavy. It, it's it's too big to to fit in a, in one of their standard box sizes easily. So yeah, it's folded in a couple of weird places. That's it's it's a real it 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 could be off putting. It's a relatively minor thing. Oh, it's but, it's very minor. But, it's just annoying. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I imagine as you get cards in here, kind of flattening out on those folds, it'll. It'll flatten it out over time. It'll be fine. But I do like that it's pre-punched ready for hanging up somewhere. Oh, yeah. That's really nice. All right. So I'm going to... We're going to go ahead and transition over to the last part of the show, which is our hobby progress. I actually have some because now that I've seen the doctor and my health is under control and my brain can focus on things other than not dying from a stroke, at least not yet, uh, uh, I've been... uh, Kind of getting myself back into uh, my brain has not, despite the fact that I've been able to podcast about it, my brain has not been where I want it to be in the hobby. Uh, I haven't been able to focus too much on like army building or anything like that. So I decided to get back into, uh, get, get back to my mini painting and kind of ease my way into it. And I start off with, uh, and also my, one of my goals for 2019 is to buy like I'll buy terrain, but I'm not going to buy much in the way of models other than like maybe special edition stuff if it fits one of my armies. Uh, but, um, which is going to be really awkward when the new sister stuff drops. But, uh, <laughs> fortunately I've got a lot of those in metal. Uh, but I'm, uh, so I'm trying to just catch up on old projects. So the first thing I hit on is I'm working on finishing up the, I have, Farsight painted, and I want to finish up the rest of the eight, although I don't have a broadside to paint to use as Obeltie. But I have a, like, I have a, a Riptide to paint for Ovesa, and I've got the other five commanders. So I'm working on the five commanders and all the drones right now. Uh, once I get the commanders done, and then I'm going to move on to finishing up Kevin's Townar so I can get that to you. Appreciate it. 
And so that is, that is what I have been doing. Also, I want to say the Citadel, I, I tend to poo poo some of the, the hobby products that Citadel comes out with until, and then the hobby, the hobby painting handle made me uh, change my mind on some of that. So I went ahead and picked up the painting cup they, like the water cup they have now, which mm-hmm. is not just a mug. Like they used, cause they had the little bitty clear water cups, which were useless. And then they had the mugs, which is like, I own mugs. I don't need to spend 20 bucks to buy a mug that just says Mephiston red on the outside. Yeah. So, but the new one they have, it's, it's gray plastic. It's about, it's about as tall as a mug and a little bit wider. Uh, it's got a flare. It flares out. So it's very stable. It won't tip over. Um, and, I actually really like it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it's got ridges along the bottom. So for cleaning your brushes out, your, the tips of the brush rub against the ridges. So it kind of helps agitate the paint out a bit. It's got cuts in the side, like uh, grooves along the inside that you can use to twist the brush up as you, as you like wring it out. So it helps reform the point. And then it's just got a little uh, notch along the top where you can set the brush in. <laughs> Okay, that that sounds really entertaining. It you know it's it's one of these things where it's like yeah it's this it's a plastic cup why do I need to buy a plastic oh there's actually some really nice features on this plastic cup and I do like the fact that it because it's it's bottom heavy so it's not going to tip over so I, I really appreciate that fully <laughs> featured plastic cup fully featured plastic cup for the win nice yeah Kevin so I painted I think. 40 berserkers this week plus uh, a chaos lord plus 10 chosen and i only have 40 cultists and yeah 40 cultists left to paint after this for lvo so i'm about halfway done have you been which, playing eye of the tiger in the background while you've been doing this Oh jesus christ this is <laughs> this is why this is why i don't i i do this and i know that i need to be better about this I basically wait until like an event and like, okay, here's the list I want to run for the event. I'll paint all this stuff for the event. Wow. I spent like a solid month painting. I don't want to do that again. And then I don't paint anything for six months. <laughs> and then you have to paint everything for a solid yeah. month. <laughs> so I, I need to break that cycle. That's kind of one of my hobby goals this year. Um, the good thing is, is that the, the cultist will paint super quick. Um, and using the airbrush, like this is the first time that I've really used the airbrush a lot of it, like for multiple pieces of the process. And that's helped a ton. Okay. I guess for me, I'm kind of going to say echo both Rob and Kevin here. Part one, I've been kind of finding, well, partly because it's cold and I've been sick and other things, but I haven't really gotten anything done and I haven't had as much motivation to, because I'm kind of like Kevin is like, I will, an event comes up, then I go, Oh, I need to get something ready for the event. And that really motivates me. And so I'm, I'm kind of hoping we're kind of we, between events right now. Oh, we're, yeah, we're totally between events. Cause I, I think unless I have something coming up, cause I don't play at Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one I can think of that I normally go to is Iron Halo, which is not till like super late in the year. Yeah. It's like October. Yeah. So mm, yeah, going to be a while. So I'm, I'm hoping that when we start up this campaign, that'll kind of get me motivated to paint some other things in my Eldar that I have not painted yet. See, there you go. We just need that's your that's our incentive is to do more campaign stuff so we have pretty tables for playing on. I was just or pretty armies models. Put, well, pretty armies. <laughs> I should say pretty armies to put on the pretty tables. Oh, okay. I'll let you make the pretty table then. <laughs> uh I've been yeah, kind of like Dennis. I haven't really gotten a lot done. Um I'm still kind of in the process of trying to rearrange and figure out where to put 
a bunch of the stuff that I've bought recently mm. that I don't have a standard storage like spot for. Uh-huh. So, and, and just trying to clean and rearrange my hobby area so that I can use it better. Yeah, and that's kind of one another reason I'm trying to work through my stuff is I have like boxes of Mechanicus terrain to build, and I have I, I still have a bunch of models that's like if I can build these, I can break down the boxes and they'll take up less space theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> well, that pretty much wraps us up for tonight. Um, uh, don't forget uh, you can register for Midwest Conquest where we will be having a friendly tournament, a GT, a horse heresy event, a kill team event, and a night joust. Uh, you can register there at MidwestConquest.com. Uh, just click the register now button. That'll take you to uh, where you can sign up for all those events. Uh, you can buy your event tickets at Undergo or UndercondGaming.com. Uh, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, probably talking Gene Stealer cults. Yeah, probably. Because uh, they're going to be popping up any minute now. <laughs> so from all of us at Preferred Enemies, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming. Now you've got no excuse not to have a campaign set of your own. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-like 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.